0: All right. So one of the most bizarre things in the world, right, is how people think. (laughs) And no matter where I go, no matter who I meet, I'm always fascinated by that. Chris, I want you to tell me why you're fascinated by it and what made you want to become a doc.
1: Well, I'm a clinical psychologist, so let's specify what kind of doc I am. Thank you very much for
0: cleaning me up on that one.
1: And my interest in how people think uh, comes just from my childhood and the the people interesting people I had around me. My father was a Vietnam veteran, not a combatant. He was a physician in the Air Force during the war. My great-grandfather was... Um, who I knew, who lived to be almost 100. So he was a prominent figure in my childhood, was a veteran of the Spanish-American War. Wow. And so as a child, I was fascinated by both my father and my great-grandfather's military experiences. So I went to graduate school with the idea and the hope and the um, aspiration of working with veterans and and trying to help them with uh, whatever they needed, or whatever I could.
0: Was um, it tough when you were a kid? I, and I know we've had, and, and just so the listeners are known, you know, Chris is actually my psychologist who literally has saved my life. we'll Well, get into that that later. We'll get into that later. People save their own lives. Well, thank you. Thank you. But you were a significant part of that. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, we've talked before about your childhood and about the impact that your father had and and how he looked at life and how he looked at things and how can you describe a little bit about that? Because when, you know, people hear there's a, a profound influence. And about you know wanting to understand um, why why we th- think certain things and, and especially within the veteran community, what were those specific influences that you you saw in your father that made you want to go down that pathway?
1: Right. <laughs> All right, Doctor Freud, we'll talk about my childhood. Just a little bit, and, just a little my, bit, because people have to understand my influences.
0: People have to. I, I really believe, and you've you've helped me understand this, is that. And so much of who we are comes from those right. child development years, and, right. and you can't deny it. I mean, so often you you know we see with our the guys that you work with, my buddies, my peers. What are you gonna do, Doc? Tell me that my childhood was screwed up, and you're like, <laughs> well, yeah, I am. You know, that's where it starts. So, yeah. you know, I, and I just would like if you would just share a sure. little bit about because he seemed like such an in, sure. intense guy. That
1: yeah, my my dad was kind of a larger than life figure. He was a eye doctor and he was very prominent and he got very good at what he did. He was at the University of Michigan and had uh, VIP patients from all over the world that would come to him for his specialty. And he, he knew everyone it seemed like and he was well connected and he worked all the time. So I didn't really see my dad that often as a child, especially after my parents got divorced. He was an authoritarian style parent which you don't really hear about much anymore he um, you know the rules were very strict were very rigid you did this you did that you did it this way or else and um, you know I, I look back on my childhood now and I think oh he would have been locked up if he'd been a parent today <laughs> you know he, he would get out the belt he would use the back of his hand there were there were rules about you know if you didn't eat your, your dinner you sat there at the table for a couple of hours afterwards until wow. you did eat it, and if you were stubborn enough to hold out it was back on the table the next morning at breakfast. Those were some of the kinds of things that he did, and I was I was absolutely intent never to be like my father, like we, we, never, never. We had yeah. conflict, we clashed. When did um, you first start like saying to yourself? I am not, were you,
0: teenage, were teenager, teenage, yeah. yeah, how old, 13, 14, yeah yeah, 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 when you're like, I, I don't know what I'm going to be, exactly, but I'm not going to be that, exactly, right, Right.
1: Yeah. exactly, and one of the things, that, and he teased me about this for decades later, he, you know, I criticized him once for working too much, and said, I'm never going to work, work as much as you do, and, now of course we know that's not true now I now I now I do work as much as he probably ever did can you um, can you just tell our audience briefly
0: where you work how many different places you oh work, sure yeah, yeah.
1: sure so I have a, a regular faculty position at the University of Hawaii on uh, the branch campus at Hilo which is on the big island and I have a one part-time job here in Houston, Texas, where we're sitting right now at the moment in the JW Marriott Hotel.
0: Little plug for JW Marriott.
1: And we're, we're um, uh, I run a, well, I set up and started to run a Center for Veterans Mental Health at the University of Texas Psychiatry Department in the medical school here in Houston. And um, I've now turned that over to to a colleague who, who who's come in behind me to, to take that, but I'm still working on that. I'm working as a consultant with Methodist Hospital here in Houston, trying to develop a program. I'm sure we'll talk about more, yeah. the Synchrony Program, for special operation warriors. I do a lot of forensic consulting, um, primarily to the National Board of Medical Examiners, mm-hmm. but also to other just random various um, homicide Prosecutions and civil suits and things like that, and then I have a sort of another secret career as a writer. Uh, I've written written a few books.
0: You, not a few. You've written a bunch, and we'll get that at the end. That yeah. will kind of yeah. end on that yeah. very uplifting, but positive. Let me, but let me get back to my father. Yeah. One,
1: one thing, and I don't know that the, I don't know about cause and effect here. I won't won't make that claim. But I never had children, so I've been married for thirty two years. I've had a wonderful beautiful wife Karen she is amazing
0: hello Karen oh and she
1: says hi to you by the way tell her yeah (laughs)
0: well I'm gonna say right now hi Karen I miss
1: you (laughs) and I can't wait to see you nice so we never had children so I never had to deal with that kind of that conflict I had with my own father about him never being around Mm -hmm.
0: Um. well and, and when did the divorce happen
1: My parents' divorced. yeah, Yeah, I was about 12. 12. Yeah.
0: So right after that is when all of a sudden, man, I don't want to be like that. Yeah. And this is, I know I want to do something else. And when was that moment where you're like, wow, psychology seems like it would be a good fit for me?
1: Uh, I would say about a year after I dropped out of law school. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have, you, that's like music to my ears, right? As a,
0: you know, I told you my old man's an attorney and man, I thought I was going to go that route, but no
1: way. Yeah. I started law school and survived a whole week and just realized <laughs> this is not going to be for me.
0: How, why, what made the awakening so apparent in, in the law? What, what was it?
1: Well, at the time I thought my classes were boring and I didn't really fit in. feel like I fit in with the other students in terms of the mindset. When I look back on it now, I think at least part of it was I just wasn't ready to be back in school again. Mm -hmm. I took a couple years off and when I went into, when I started my doctoral program, I loved it, like instantaneously. It was like I bought, I remember buying my books I was excited. I was like looking forward to school at that point. Right. And, and, and I just had that sense of this is where I'm supposed to be.
0: Was it one particular you know, branch of study, a person in the past? Was it like Carl Jung? You read Carl Jung for the first time, you're like, bing!
1: No, I can't say it was anything like that. I really can't. I um, and I mean, I'm in my mid 50s now, so this was so long ago, yeah, I barely right. remember.
0: Right. Was there was there a point where in your early collegiate career where you were like, well, you know, there's something about the human mind and why we choose to do certain things that really stood out to you?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I majored in psychology mm-hmm. and wasn't intending to when I went to college. I was intending to be a history major. And wow. Why? Took, I loved history. Still do. I read history books. My writing is fictional, right. historical fiction. Um, I I, I still to this day most of what I read is his history
0: was that the influence from your father and your grandfather and their service and all
1: that Uh, was that a maybe maybe yeah I don't know interesting never made that that connection before but possibly
0: yeah because you know for me it was similar too but you know it was (sighs) generations ago i had a great great uncle or something that was in the spanish american war as well too and and that was the only legacy of of history in in our mm-hmm. family everybody mm-hmm. else was an attorney or whatever mm-hmm. and but there was something about history for me as well too yeah. that really was
1: profound wow maybe our great grandfather's knew each other they might have they might Maybe have. Maybe they saved each other's lives.
0: Well, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. yeah. No, he was actually in uh, Teddy Roosevelt's cabinet and the whole thing. And oh wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We wow. have a sword at the house wow. and stuff. So, yeah. but then it just died after that.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually, when, when the timing is right, I want to tell my grand, my great grandfather's story a little bit more because it really does tell it. Give an influence right to, now. Gives a sense of kind of my influence. So the story is: is he ran? He was sixteen years old. Ran away from home. Um, where was he michigan militia yeah. and ended up in in cuba on the uh on the other side of the hill from from teddy roosevelt's rough rider so mm-hmm. he was on the side in his perspective we were taking all the casualties and they got teddy roosevelt and his boys got all the glory yeah they Ohio. did yep. <laughs> and um but but it was a it was a very short war um especially compared to, to modern day to what we've Holy endured shit. I think it was he was there for about three months but what pe- most people don't know is they didn't have a lot of food, there were, the logistics weren't well planned. He said at one point they were given a cow, his unit was given a cow, a live cow and told you know this will be your food for the next few weeks and so they, wow. they butchered it and, and cut it up and figured out how to, pre- somebody in the unit knew how to preserve it a little bit so they were, they didn't starve to death but they were hungry so when he mustered out it was at the you know, it was at the dock in in New York, at New York City, and um, his whole unit was mustered out and just kind of dumped there on the dock. You know, this is eight. We're talking eighteen ninety eight. Yep. He would have. He was. He's. You know, the story is, and it's become a whole family legend now. Is he was, he and all the guys he was with were starving. They had malaria, dysentery. That's what I was going to ask about. They've lost yeah. weight. Yeah, I mean, they were in bad shape. Not from... not from, The combat, but not from, from combat, environmental from, factors. Exactly. And he didn't think he would make it. And there wasn't really exactly a VA system like we have now to, <laughs> to kind of receive them. So the story is, is that a wealthy local woman came down in her horse and buggy with her butler and picked out the six guys that were there on the dock who looked the sickest. And she took them home to her home, her personal home, and nursed them. In Manhattan, right there. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And for a couple of months. And then as they, one by one, as they got, regained their health and strength and were able to travel, she set them up with, you know, funds to get home.
0: Wow. And... Do you know what her name was?
1: You know, I do. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I have some records somewhere
0: uh, of her. We'll and, have
1: to post that once you, you uh, get those I, I, Yeah. One of these days, I want I want to write something about about that, yeah. and so, but this brings us to today, where we have a society that is really kind of aloof from veterans in a lot of ways. It, it, I think the perspective for most civilians in our world is, well, the war is fought by warriors, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, Coast Guard, and then they have the DOD that takes care of them, and then the VA that takes care of them, and it's all paid for, it's all good, nothing we need to do. Most civilians don't even know a veteran of the recent, war, you know, of the war on global terror, um, the global war on terror, and most don't um, have any, you know, have a lot of interaction with, with veterans.
0: Well, they get to say thank you for your service thank every you your so service. often,
1: right? Yeah. and yeah. that's you, we, that's become kind of the Kabuki theater routine we see on airplanes and airports and, and so on and so forth. But here was a woman 120 years ago who literally saved the lives of six men. Who otherwise might not have made it, and she wow. took them home. It wasn't like she just shook their hand and thanked them for their service. Here,
0: took, here, here's a couple dollars. You know, yeah, go she get took some them home, food. Yeah, right.
1: Fed them, put them in beds, and and had you know cared for them. Wow. And so that's always that's always stuck with me is, is that you know there's so much more we we should do for some segment of the the veteran population. So it wasn't so
0: much of of your great grandfather's or your grandfather's service per se. It was the entirety of the situation, yes, yes. right? It was it was this. Where Michigan was he from? Oh, I think from it was Albion, Michigan. Albion, okay. Because you know my whole family's from Michigan, so Jackson. It was Jackson, Jackson and the, Albion. Okay. My grandmother
1: went to Albion College. I think they. I think she grew up in Jackson, Michigan.
0: Yeah. And what was their background descent? Where were they from originally? Their ancestry? Uh, or?
1: Mostly British. British, yeah. yeah.
0: And, and you know, there was this big wave and push out to the Midwest and towards that area. And, and that actually, you know, the Rutherfords, there was a big split and a bunch went to the Appalachians and the other ones went to okay. upstate New York. Yeah. And then okay. they kept just going on over yeah. into the Midwest. And
1: and if I go back in in my own family history, there's there's one there's a so my great grandfather's oh, his last name was Brocklebank and his great, great. Maybe a couple more greats than their grandfather it was a captain, Brocklebank, who was killed in the King-Indian-Philip War wow. in Massachusetts. Yeah, You know, I think, you know, hundreds of years before that. Before yeah, 16, that. it was like 16-something, right? Might even have been 15-something. Wow. Yeah, I, I need to, I should know that, but I don't off the top of my head. We should
0: all know what our heritage <laughs> right. is, right, where we right. come from and right. why. So you, you experienced it, and was this a
1: story that
0: your father told regularly, or was it your grandfather that Actually,
1: told so this was on my mother's side, and it's a story I heard from her mother. So my grandmother would tell this story frequently over the years after his death, right. just to keep it alive. And my great-grandfather died when I was about 11 or 12. Okay. So I actually, the very first, I like did a formal interview with him when I was 10 or 11. Wow. I actually sat on his lap with a notebook and asked him questions. And, um, you know, we, we went through it together and he, it, he it, talked to me.
0: It's, it's it's interesting that as, you know, your father's a physician, so the meticulousness of, of details must have been pronounced, especially as they were reinforced with that mm-hmm. that that hard hand. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you realize, wow, there's a, there's a, there's a, a heritage within who I am that's powerful, right? Mm-hmm. These stories. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, go through the divorce, go out, go do your thing, and then you hit college and this history is just overwhelming you. Where was the little, where was, instead of going down that history thing, all of a sudden, huh, man, the human
1: mind is pretty radical. I just, yeah, right, yeah. I just loved psychology. I loved the classes. And, you know, I think it it always comes back to the teachers, right? Yeah. So my my first semester of college, I took a took a psychology one hundred with a with a fellow named Ken King.
0: Wow, you remember him still? Oh yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, and then had another class later that year with a guy named Michael Levine. The two of them, um, I think they probably hated each other for some reason, but the two of them um, <laughs> were amazing teachers and and became you know very influential for me.
0: It's funny, man. You know, when kids at that age. And my reference point is, is being a teacher in the teams, right? That's when, right. when my whole world right. expanded yeah. in that yeah. capacity. And you see these 18, 19, 20-year-old kids that have literally opened themselves up to whatever type of pain we can inflict
1: so that they can learn a particular skill set that, you know. And, and I, I have a feeling that you as a teacher in the teams were inflicting a very different Type of pain that I inflict on my college freshman. Well,
0: uh, well I was—you've seen me. I've, te- I've you have let me get in front of them a couple of times, so you've they're seen. Still recovering. Of- <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But my, my my point is, is man, when you get the right influence, and you get that, and and you get the right kid who's ready, and they're primed for that that deep rooted sense of what could be for them and it it just it catapults them into these these other uh, this next level of dedication and i think it's such a critical point
1: did you see that when when you were teaching yeah yeah
0: absolutely there was the kids that were the robots the kids that all right go run into the brick wall and they're great and then there's the kids that go run in a brick wall and they're like, why do you want me to run in? You mm-hmm. know, that next level. Mm-hmm. And then, and those were the ones where it became, all right, have you thought about what it means to be a frog man? Mm-hmm. Not just what it means to pull a trigger. That's the easy part, right? But what it means to be a real teammate. What it means, excuse me, what it means to be a real operator. That You know, the the, the great classic term, operator, right? Right. right? And for me, I always... I think because of my background and the fact that I was in the humanities as well, you know, as an art major. But I mean, I think I spent, you know, you know, a year with a (laughs) sociology, trying to get a sociology and then psychology, you know, a couple semesters. And then, you know, back and forth to art history and all that. But it was in that space I began to understand that, man, the, the how we function culturally, where we come from, how we think, our processes all are, are relevant to our ability to succeed or fail. And that became the point that I really tried to instill in those kids is that, hey, there's much more than just this physical aspect or the mental fortitude or the strength you're bringing. You got to be a thinker, too. In
1: this. And I, I would add on onto that in, in, from my perspective teaching undergraduate students is, is that sometimes you see the students who are really concerned about getting the good grade and less concerned about learning and understanding the material at a deep level. Mm-hmm. And then you have the other kids who seemed like they could care less about the grade <laughs> per se, but man, they're into learning the material. right? And so what I've come to appreciate is whether a student gets a C, B, or A may not mean a whole lot about their actual passion or interest or even grasp of the material. Um, And then the other thought that I've had over the years is sometimes students that you think didn't get it while they were in the class, you see them a semester or a year or five years later, and they come up to you and they say, you know, that class really changed my perspective on everything. And it's just like, boom, you know, it's, so you don't always see the blossoming while there in the moment. Sometimes it it, it becomes apparent and evident down the road
0: think you know once
1: you once
0: and, and you know once you start teaching for any period of time you get to the point where you begin to realize wow this individual didn't have much influence in this particular you know this particular uh way of thinking prior to and you know i think you know at many times when i was a young man i always thought maybe i was behind the power curve because i didn't know how to change my oil or I didn't know, you know, I didn't know how to uh, work on a car, you know, something a little bit more blue collar because sure. my old man is this cerebral attorney and he's, we're talking about philosophy as a kid and we're talking about all this other stuff. And I'm like, man, I'm missing out. But then I ended up knowing, well, I actually had a greater advantage because I looked at things in a more cerebral way, which coalesce with what we need to Endure or survive life itself. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So you get into your doctoral program. Did you have any idea at that moment that, you know, the emphasis of of, of the future would be towards veterans?
1: Yeah, I think that was my plan. Right yeah. from the beginning? From the beginning, although I didn't know what that meant or yeah. where that would lead me or what that would mean. And when did you start your doctoral program? 1987. Okay. And All right. Before class has started, like the week, literally the Friday night before class has started, I was at a graduate school party and met met this woman named Karen, and, and we started dating. So I was falling in love and being kind of distracted for my first, you know, our <laughs> courtship that that first semester and by the yeah. way
0: everybody listening just so you know do, uh karen is also a doctor of psychology yeah she was a year ahead of me yeah yeah, yeah. So
1: brilliant brilliant woman she laughs she teases me she says she should have two phds because i used all her notes and her, <laughs> her index cards all the way through <laughs> drafting in her you know, behind her
0: now that's an operator at, at heart right yeah. there <laughs> all right so when can you talk about once what was your thesis on first off
1: I did a, oof, going way back. Well, so I had to get a mas- did a master's thesis right. and then a doctoral dissertation. So right. the master's thesis was something to do with gender role language differences. Mm-hmm. And I barely remember remember that. The My dissertation was a study looking at how combat veterans report symptoms. And I actually was able to collect all of my, or I should say half of my data in a VA hospital. Really, where yeah. was that yeah, at? Yeah, it was the Charleston. Charleston. South Carolina VA. And that's where I went for my internship and then ended up working there for for about 15 years.
0: Now, so, at that time in, and, and, you know, that was probably what, 89 when, when you were? 91. when you were finished. I started, and, yeah, yeah, okay. when I started. Yeah, okay. And you, you know, 91.
1: Different era. Different era, man. Totally different era. The,
0: the data that they had, you know, the, the issues I think that, you know, the remnants of the issues from Vietnam had been buried.
1: Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, yeah. was a new disorder. Right. It had only been around for about 10 years. In, in that, that classification, though, in, right? In we, that, we had been calling it other things for years, right? N- well, we'd been—yes, w- yes and no. We didn't—the the DSM, the diagnostic manual of the APA, did not really have anything that, that fit at all, PTSD nothing. prior to 1980. So they didn't, right.
0: shell shock wasn't in there nope. or any nope. anything nope. like that?
1: Right, no, it wasn't. And I mean, yes, in World War One we called it shell shock. In World War Two we called it-
0: Battle fatigue. Battle fatigue, yeah.
1: combat fatigue. Yeah. And if we go back to Civil War, where some of my work has, some of my recent work has been, right. if we go back to the Civil War, uh, DaCosta syndrome, or, or sometimes known as uh, soldier's heart. right. Uh, was was a term, and 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 both shell shock and soldier's heart, I think, in some ways, are better conceptualizations of, of what, of, what's going on than than what we have today. Man, I love
0: soldier's heart. I mean, that that for yeah. me, that just like you just said that, and like I'm sitting here, reflecting on it, going, man, what a better description for right? it. I mean, and,
1: and it, what what was happening at the time were soldiers, combat soldiers, were were reporting cardiac symptoms. Mm-hmm. That had no pathophysiological basis. So, a the, the doctor at the time named Acosta named you know named it a syndrome. Wow, um, that that was really primarily psychiatric.
0: Well, it's funny, and you sure. know, when you go all the way and you just and you know you're a student of history too, and you it doesn't matter how far back you go and whether you're reading the Iliad or whatever. It's there. It's there. Yeah. It's always there and right. it's at every level and every culture and every every place there's a this component of 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 the suffering that's affiliated with right. going to war
1: and the journey afterwards. That's the one
0: that's the one that, you know, it almost because I don't want to say it's been romanticized, but you know, historians have a way of kind of doing that and then in the prose and stuff where you might get you know, Ernest Hemingway talking about right. and, and turning it into this romantic, you know, conquest of suffering, right? Yeah. And and it's like, now You've got you know. Hemingway,
1: you've got Shakespeare, yeah. you've got Homer, you've got the epic of Gilgamesh yeah. and a thousand other things. Yeah, I mean, we we do, but look, we romanticize war as well. Yeah, we do. Do In in war movies, all going, you know, going back to John Wayne and yeah. before, yeah. we, we've tended to romanticize it. Including just moments of like oftentimes especially modern day movies when when one of the heroes dies, it's usually in slow motion. Yeah. With touching music playing.
0: Right. Uh, and, and and you see these kids and they 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 believe in how the fantastical uh, patriotism and all of this stuff that's affiliated with it. And thank God. I mean, you look at my generation and and i used to talk we, you know marcus and i on on the podcast you used to talk about this all the time about these profound influences of john rambo and 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 commando and you know all these guys in these war movies and like that was it for us i mean that charlie sheen maybe Char- navy seals maybe navy seals, yeah. 1991 yeah. i mean you know it and michael bean and 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 i think there it really is a driving force before we get in, into that a little bit, I just want to touch a little bit on that time where you were getting, you know, doing your dissertation and the data you were seeing and, and what was going on in the VA at that time, in your pre- impression.
1: Yeah, 1991, 92, early 90s, when I was started at the VA, virtually all of the patients that I was seeing were Vietnam veterans with a, with a sprinkling of Korean veterans, hmm. So, and I had like, I think three World War II era veterans that I followed for, um, for several years. One was a, one was a gentleman who served in the Pacific, He'd been a Marine, Mm -hmm. um, and, and Wow. You know, he'd been at a lot of the the major, uh, battles in the, in the South Pacific. (sighs) I can't even imagine. Oh, I mean, it was incredible to hear his, his experiences.
0: And was he talking to you?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. He was good. Oh yeah. He was like wide open with you. Well, I mean, he was suffering. Yeah. He was probably 70 at the time. But, yeah, we talked about his experiences in in depth. Had he ever told anybody else? Never. I don't think so. Wow. I don't think so. Why do you think that generation didn't talk about it? Different culture, different era, different expectations. Who was there to listen?
0: Because everybody was there.
1: Well, that's there's some truth to that I mean the whole twenty two million people served not everybody was there, but the whole country was mobilized right so who did you talk to and you know there wasn't an expectation that, that you would suffer right you know and and clearly many did, but on the flip side post world War two generation you know was accountable for the or was part of the greatest economic expansion in the history of of economy really. yeah. Um, I think, I think it was a time where you did your duty and as much as it hurt, as much as you were affected by it, you came home and you had your family and you went to work. Yeah. And there wasn't nobody saying, Hey, you should, you should go to the VA. Yeah. Even though the VA was growing rapidly at that time and was expanding. So clearly there was a need. It just was, and there were people using it. It just wasn't at the same time.
0: Well, I think, you know, when you had such a rapid development of the American Legion, of the VFW, oh, right? So you had Good all point. these pop ups, these pop up treatment centers essentially. Essentially
1: an organically created yep. uh, program that they created for themselves. For themselves, right.
0: And, and imagine, I always go back, like just last week, I'm in Alaska and like, I go to the Royal Order, the Moose Club, or something, <laughs> wherever I gave my speech, man. and... Soon as I walk in on the wall that you know, the all the guys that have been the president of this club and then they had like a woman who was the official whatever of the club and it went dated all the way back to the early nineteen fifties. And I'm thinking to myself, this is where people came right. to to sit down it's at really- the bar, grab three beers and laugh about their buddies getting their legs blown off. Right. And that was that was the place where
1: that's, treatment happened. That's how you coped. Yep. Yep. And Let's remember, uh, there was there was no 24-hour media, there was there was very little um, press that was anti-war during World War II. Mm-hmm. Movies in Hollywood were specifically and intentionally being filmed to show the heroism of American troops and forces. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole the whole zeitgeist of our society was to be about supporting the troops, supporting the war effort. You know, everybody bought war bonds. Everybody was aware of, you know, rations of sugar and, and gasoline and other, other commodities. So everybody felt like they were a part of it, which has yeah. totally changed. You know, in the Vietnam War, we now, for the first time, had a press that was questioning it, was criticizing the war effort. Um, military personnel coming back from Vietnam were not welcomed right. home. In many cases, in many cases, you know, they were greeted at the airports with protesters who, who spit on them and threw things at them. Um, thank goodness, that's, we, we haven't really seen much of that kind of mm-hmm. uh, behavior in the last 20 years. But yeah, just very, cult, just culturally very different. Very different. I'll, I'll tell you, my next door neighbor in uh, Charleston, South, Car- in South Carolina, uh, for the last eight years that I lived there was a, had been a prisoner of war. Wow. Of the Nazis. He had been shot down over Germany. Wow. Um, he wasn't a, a pilot, he was a, a bombardier, and it had been, I guess he was the last one that got out of the, the flying fortress that he was in with a, with a parachute, and there were still a couple people left who didn't get out. Wow. So he, he landed on the ground and was alive and was held in captivity for two years. And so I knew him, he's in his late 70s by the time I, I got to know him, and, and both he and his wife be, were, became good friends, and you know part of the story they talked about was you just didn't talk about it you zip you, you put it in a a box yep. and you close the box and you wrapped it up in a in a you know a, <laughs> a waterproof bag and then you put it in a safe and you know it was like <laughs> and you dropped it into the abyss and you dropped of your mind it into the abyss of your mind exactly <laughs> yeah. that's
0: a great visual man um when did you start to, as you're you're meeting these people and you're talking to them did your sense of, of of commitment towards helping just start to really bloom in that? Like going, wow, there's something a lot deeper here going on. Yeah. And, and t- t- walk me through that. when And what was the process once you were through your dissertation? And then how did you know which direction to go with this?
1: Well, I won't say that I did. And, oh, wow. And my career has taken a lot of different twists and turns, many of which I never would have could have foreseen originally I thought oh I'll work in the VA for a couple of years and then maybe go into private practice maybe stay in the VA didn't have any research aspirations but eventually that became a major part of of my work and my career was was studying um, the reactions and the outcomes Uh, I became very interested in in doing clinical trials and so I've had all the you know done the NIH grants and the DoD grants to, to look it out clinical outcomes and things like that. So I've done a lot of the traditional stuff that an academic psychologist might do. I, I feel dissatisfied with the state of modern um, mental health care and I feel especially dissatisfied with the VA's approach.
0: Hold on, hold on, that's that's you're jumping way for it.
2: Hold on, let's, because
1: <laughs> okay. we got to get back to where
0: this whole thing kicked off, right. right? So at, where were you then in in 2001 9/11 happens. Where where were you in your practice? Where were you in your teaching? What had you published? In just 2001,
1: right uh, before it all changed again. I'll, I'll tell you the day. Yeah. So I got my first my first uh, research grant funded in 1999. Wow. And that was an NIH career development award that paid for 75% of my salary. So I went pretty much overnight from being 100% clinician to being 25%. Clinician and then seventy-five percent on research.
0: Explain cl- clinician and research to, for the listeners.
1: Okay, so twenty-five um, percent of my time uh, was was devoted to, to doing clinical work. I was in an academic medical center, so I had a. I was at the VA, but I also had a faculty appointment at the Medical University of South Carolina, mm-hmm. and was you know doing those traditional steps of rising up through the ranks from instructor to assistant to associate to full professor, and um, I was. You know, enjoying my work. It was yeah. I was happy. Never expected to get a research grant, and then I did. You know, I wrote, writing it was kind of a lark. Uh, that I, I'm, honestly, I did more to please you know one of my bosses there just to show the effort. <laughs> and then when it got funded, I was you know I had people saying, well, if you take that, that means you're giving up your your VA federal job security, right? Uh, and and I I you know I didn't listen to that. I so I I had at that point I had. A quarter of my time being paid by the VA to see patients and three-quarters of my time being paid on the university side to do research in the VA right. and also in the community.
0: And was that uh, the first time you really started in earnest the research? Yeah. 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 I
1: probably had 30 publications at that time, which is partly why I got the, the, jo- the, the grant, grant. Yeah. to begin wow. with. But,
0: and what were you writing so far? What was the main focus of what you kept writing
1: about? Well, at that point, mostly descriptive papers of... Of veterans, symptoms of what presentation of PTSD looked like. I mean, this was still early enough in the fe- in the history of PTSD right. to that there was still need for papers that are just describing it and, and reporting what do, what do combat veterans with PTSD, what are their symptoms, what are some of the things that they're suffering from, what are some of the difficulties they have in life, what are, what are their family experiences, those kinds of things. I also was writing some some of what I was doing was looking at VA system at, system issues. Mm-hmm. Um, the the name for that is called health services research, fancy way of saying <laughs> we're studying what we're doing. Yeah. And um
0: And how we're doing and it. And how we're doing it. Yeah. And
1: I'd done a not a randomized controlled trial, but I'd done a at that point, um I'd done a open trial, meaning not controlled. Right. And we we took together and we pieced together a number of different interventions. Um, put them into one package with the idea that that would address more of a broad range of the symptoms and difficulties that veterans had. Was the data tough to f- come by at that point or was it plentiful and available? And No and in fact my first kind of my first foray into the world of research was we had filing cabinets full of data that it, <laughs> that I and others before me had collected over the last four, five, six years. So th- my first efforts was just being a guy going in on the weekends and plunking away at entering that data right, right? and then it became analyzing it um,
0: but this was all still like I mean it was pretty raw back then yeah right? yeah. yeah 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 and yeah. I
1: was I was young and naive and, 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 and eager <laughs> naive about what <laughs> everything <laughs> everything and and I, I you know I had no particular ambition this was just stuff that, w- that was kind of cool to me so I wasn't tr- doing anything with a plan to build on it and, and, and go anywhere right I really didn't have have any ambition about that all right
0: so here you are you've got this big grant which is in, in many cases for uh you know anybody that's into clinical work or research that's the essence right and all of a sudden all right i'm legit i've got this grant i can focus on really developing my theories and my right and, and i wouldn't
1: use the word legit because i wouldn't want to cast any kind of aspersion on clinicians you know right, I have right. full respect for for full-time clinicians right. it's hard work and it's important work it just took me in a different different directions, right. just different ways of helping people right
0: right I, I always look at the clinical work as man it you know when you're working with the individual it's it just it, it there's so much that goes into it right mm-hmm. there's so much diagnostic there's so many inventories you have to take and so many you know rabbit holes you have to go down to even begin to get to the spot where it's like the person's ready and available
1: to, yeah, for when those that, that, you know, when that, when you get there, when that, happens. when that yeah. happens. Right. And,
0: and I just, man, it just, we, you only have so many t- hours in your day. You only can meet so many patients in a week. Well, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and I always just like, whoa, I, you know, for, so for me, it's always, man, you know, having your skill sets and being able to look at the, the massive amounts of data and, and, and then combine that with, you know, the 25% clinical work. I was, and that's the, that's the conduit towards finding solutions. So, all nine right, eleven, where are you? What are you doing? And what'd you think?
1: Well, like many of us, I have, you know, very cl- specific flashbulb memories of that, that moment in that day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, two things stand out for me. One was, that was a day I had been honored by the Medical University of South Carolina. I was awarded a Early Career Development Award Wow, for research. And like that was kind of a big deal for me at the time. And, and one aspect of that was I had to give a talk to my whole department, Department of Psychiatry. So I was scheduled to give a talk midday about my work. And um, <laughs> yeah, right. So that morning, that morning I, I, I go down to the waiting room, I greet a patient, we walk back to my office. As a patient that was well known to me at the time and he said you know i just saw the funniest thing on tv it looked like a couple of planes flying into the world trade centers wow and was he a veteran yeah he was a vietnam combat veteran wow and we we both kind of after discussing it in the, in the, my office just decided it must have been a a, you know, a movie or some some kind of fictional something mm-hmm. and then we came out of my office at the end of the session, and we heard other people in the hallways talking about it. And that's when we really learned together. Oh my goodness, this is what has just happened. And I went, you know, went down to give my talk, like which was like half an hour after that, or something like that. And uh, yeah, everything was canceled that day, and yeah. and, uh, and everything changed. And everything changed, right?
0: Did you have the 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 forethought going? Wow now my work is going to be more important than ever did you did you get a sense of how grand uh it was going to become did you have that in you
1: that intuition i can't say that um i, I can't say i you know i got home that night and maybe a day or two later and was was puzzling was trying to think what can i do you know how, what, what what can i do to you know kind of do some make a more important contribution and was some discussion of of among my colleagues in, in charleston about maybe going up to new york and being able, you know kind of being you know on on, on standby for, right for people that maybe needed psychological help um i think we did put together a sort of a, a list of people who were ready and available to go if called and we never got called mm-hmm. never got invited and ironically the well i won't I won't go down that route okay check um a part of me wanted to to sign up yeah um, uh, that was a that, that became a, an emotional conversation with my wife I bet. who who really wasn't you know didn't want to see me do that so.
0: Well, wow. I, I always look at, it, and we've had that talk before, man. The work you've done now is a, a thousand times more impactful than you ever carrying a gun, man. And we'll get to that in a second. Hold on. I know you hate when I do shit like that to because <laughs> you're like the worst in the world at taking compliments. But that's all right. We'll work on that. All right. Bef- all right. Well, Bef- let me. It's not ahead. that
1: I'm not good at taking compliments. I mean, maybe I'm not, but that's not my. That's not why I hesitated just now. It's it's that you know I think for a lot of people felt a, a sense of. Maybe a sense of of duty and a sense of failure that we didn't didn't sign up. Now I was how old was I at the time? I was thirty-seven, thirty-eight probably. And that became a, a way of saying, Oh, I'm too old to, to yeah. go. But you know, I never felt comfortable with that. I, I
0: I always you know, when I get into it with people who do this and I and I have this conversation yeah, quite imagine, a bit. I, I always say, Listen, you know, when you look at the style of warfare that ensued, right? This was a, this was an intelligence-based operation in Afghanistan for the first two years. Mm-hmm. It was completely uh, anchored and run by the intelligence apparatus, their paramilitary wing, and only the special operations community was at the forefront. Now, you know, certainly there were you know conventional mechanized you know army units and marine corps units, but. You know special operations took the brunt of that right from the get-go and we've continued to take the brunt Continue. of that yeah even through i mean now iraq i'm not gonna you know knock anyone i mean any one of the national guard units that were in ramadi or in Fallujah <laughs> that were just you know completely ill-prepared for the level of combat that they faced. but certainly special operations community has has uh, labored uh, pretty extensively over the last 19 years um before we shift into, into this next phase about your affiliation with special operations guys, can you tell, can, in your best words, can you explain what post-traumatic stress disorder is?
1: Well, interestingly, it, is, it keeps shifting. Ah, that's, <laughs> why,
0: that's why I wanted to pin you down on so what the, your impression of right, it is. So
1: the American Psychiatric Association publishes a book that's called The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual psychiatric disorders i hate the, that book by the way. The dsm <laughs> hate the book or they hate the title or both
0: i hate the book because you know I, as you know I, i'm a big fan of martin seligman and 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 positive psychology so i always feel like uh, uh that branch is
1: underrepresented in
0: there and and well, you know for and, sure and that's why he ended up writing his manual too so
1: so the yeah so the apa put out this book that, that that's an important book beca- no doubt. because it was the first, so they first published it in 1952 and right. when it was first published it was p- a pretty thin volume and it was the first time ever that psychiatric disorders had been explicitly described so that when I when I talked about depression and you talked about depression and referred to the DSM, we were talking about the same criteria. right? And so now we had a reliable way of communicating and making diagnoses um, it was completely a-theoretical, so it didn't say what caused the depression. It just described it. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 and it really was responsible for, I think, the explosion of clinical research that happened after 1952 because now researchers all had a common language and a, and a way of reliably diagnosing the patients. They it's
0: really with. what legitimized like B.F. Skinner and Piaget and all those guys, right, because it, it gave them they had Legitimized psychiatry, psychiatry and right? psychology, yeah, yeah. and
1: all the mental health treatment efforts. Right. So that was 1952, DSM one, and now we're at DSM five. So we're now into the fifth edition, which was published in 2013, and, and PTSD was added in 20, 1980. And, and, oh wow! And I didn't
0: know it went back that far.
1: Yeah, just 1980. Wow. So when I started my career, it was about 10 years into. Existence, uh, formalized existence of this disorder, mm-hmm. or formalized recognition of this dis- of this disorder. It once was classified as an anxiety disorder, with mm-hmm. anxiety being the primary feature. Right. In 2013, they pulled it out of the anxiety disorders and kind of gave it its own category called trauma-related disorders. Mm-hmm. And they made it a little more complicated and a little more about some other things than just anxiety. But to your question, essentially, it's. It's re-experiencing of the traumatic event. Well, let me even back up. So there isn't a, There has to be a traumatic, a traumatic event. event right. So post-trauma stress. Re-experiencing can be um, memories that just come out of nowhere. Could be nightmares, dreaming of the traumatic event. It could be um, being being reminded. Having you know. Seeing or hearing or smelling something. Smelling, big one. Yeah. Um, one of the core features of anxiety disorders in general is avoidance. If mm-hmm. Something makes you anxious. What do you do? You stay away from it. Right. Or if it, when it pops up, you escape. And so what what we what people have seen is a lot of people with PTSD, not just veterans, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, people from affected by all kinds of tr- traumatic events can experience p- uh, PTSD. So, avoidance of things that might remind, mm-hmm. avoidance of people that might remind, avoidance of situations that might be arousing. So, what you hear, you know, commonly described are avoiding crowds, avoiding uh, social situations, even family, yeah. avoiding intimacy, avoiding family interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, sleep disturbance is a powerful aspect of it. So, both the nightmares, the fear of nightmares, um, just the hyper arousal, being aroused from sleep at any little noise, any sound, mm-hmm. oftentimes, or things that interfere with sleep. <laughs> um, You're
0: going down unless I'm like, check, 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 check. check, check.
1: check. <laughs> um, and then emotional arousals like anger, being easily angered, and then avoiding things that might cause anger so for example one of the things that I've a lot of you hear from a lot of veterans is they say well I don't go go to the grocery store because partly because I'm anxious about the crowds but I'm also worried that if I get in a line and somebody does something stupid I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my cool yeah and so that's part of part of it um you put together all that avoidance with with the sleep disruption and the anger and the not sleep and and the uh, and just the general anxiety you know, all of that is a recipe for, you know, just dis- distorting and disturbing family relationships, work, school, you know, things like that.
0: Do they attach any behavioral traits onto those definitions at all?
1: Well, they can take on a variety of different manifestations. Okay. And so typically the avoidance is the behavior mm-hmm. and the anger is the beha- is a behavior and um, exaggerated startle response becomes a behavior you know, there's a, a door slams and, and you're on the floor underneath the table and I'm not, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, they've, they've added a little more to it, um, including emotional feelings like depression, guilt. okay, um, Survivor's remorse would, would qualify in that sense of self-blame or self, you know, taking on a, you know, responsibility uh, that, may, that may be greater. Than than is actually warranted mm-hmm. regarding what what happened. So there's a there is now a cognitive and a, an a, emotional aspect to it. Yeah, I, I was wondering it. if
0: they were gonna put you know keep flushing it out on on so people have a greater you know a greater
1: perspective of how big it can be. Right, right. And, and you know just a, a simple point, but one that probably many people aren't aware of. Every psychiatric disorder is characterized generally by two things. Distress, that's very subjective, and impairment. So that impairment of being able to do important things like family, work, school, whatever the functioning is.
0: And and, you know what? One thing I've no I've noticed about my own post-traumatic stress, as well as other people, is is you know, there's, there's really not a lot of consistencies of those metrics, right? One day it's not so bad, the next day it's
1: really bad. Right, that's the thing. Yeah. It's not every day, it's yeah. not every minute, it's not every time. Um, and I've certainly have known people with PTSD who do really well in certain circumstances and not very well in other situations. Or do really well for six months or a year and then, kind of, you know, fall back to old feelings and old patterns. Um, so it it can, you know, over the life course, it can have an ebb and a flow to it.
0: Yeah, that that for me is the real fascinating aspect of it yeah. is that it, it, it our brains are so capable of continuing to work on it, right? Mm-hmm. Continuing to figure out how to restructure the memory or restructure right. the, the right? right and and it's almost as if you'll go and you'll, you'll be exposed to one particular thing, whether, and that could be, you know, a war movie or you're exposed, you read a book about post-traumatic stress, whatever you're, and then all of a sudden your brain is trying to rework and and you'll see these shifts on how it presents or you'll see these shifts. And now all of a sudden, instead of a, a sense of, of relief from a lot of people, it's readjusting their baseline which can intensify the problem itself
1: well and think about all the developed milestones you go through in life and you know developmental psychology is heavily about childhood you know the, the milestones of you know, like object permanence and acquiring language and things like that but we don't stop developing I mean we have milestones right. forever yeah so until we die from from conception to, to death so Uh, you're how old are you now 47 47 so you know you're you've got new family that you're putting together Mm -hmm. think about your parents uh, changes that they may be experiencing substantial Um, you know we go through you know marriages when kids grow up there there are new milestones pertaining to them when they leave the house when they get married when they establish themselves and their careers and their and their own families um, you know, at some point, uh, parents pass away, um, friends die, friends get sick, you know, th- all of those things. And, and so I think our understanding of our own past is constantly evolving and changing. And, and we, we, know that, we know that from cognitive psychology and cognitive sciences that, that memories are constantly being adjusted, fine-tuned, adapted, reformed, constructed altogether. And so are our interpretations and perspectives on, on things that we remember.
0: It was interesting. I was just reading an article on like neuroscience.com. I follow them on online, and they just were talking about the delta waves that happen in sleep, and mm-hmm. and how, you know, certain delta waves can reinforce memory in your in your um in your brain wherever mm-hmm. you know. Where, and but it's all derivative of of how you're sleeping, right? And if you if you can sleep well, your memories are are uh, uh, more elastic, right? They're they're more
1: functional for you. Oh, sleep is so critical. Yeah. So many parts of our consciousness yeah. and our conscious experience. I mean, so much happens when we're sleeping. Our 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 brain is literally cleaning itself. We now know this that there's a there's a lymphatic system that essentially takes out the trash while we're asleep. Wow. And if we don't sleep, that doesn't happen. Uh, we're consolidating memories, but we're also sorting and, and organizing thoughts and ideas and memories and figuring out which ones to keep and which ones to discard. We're problem solving. Our imagination is getting, you know, developed and strengthened uh, during sleep.
0: And even and, their sense of that 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 space time continuum, right? And and how you know the way your memory is being stored and how you can utilize it for your future self. Right. And, yes. and almost almost memories or nightmares or whatever construct of of, of that subconscious as it presents itself is almost in the future in many cases. Mm. Right. And for me, that was the real interesting thing. That if, you know, in this sleep, in this healthy sleep, you're better situating yourself for your future, right? And how you're gonna address oh, absolutely. right and right. how
1: you're gonna address because the trauma ain't going away. The past events aren't going to go away, exactly. But the sensation of the trauma might change for sure.
0: Yeah, for and I for me that's the real fascinating. Yeah. for and yeah. that's why that electromagnetic stuff is seems interesting and all that. But hold on, is, before we get into that, because I, I really want to go down those rabbit holes of, of treatment in a second. But when can let's go back to nine eleven happen? The shift, the sense of service you, that it's that's washing right. over you, wanting to potentially sign up and get back in the fight in whatever context that looks for you. But when was the first time that you connected with a special operations guy from the modern era and were like, I want to help this guy?
1: Hmm. Well, it didn't happen in the VA. Did not happen. Did not happen. Yeah. Do you remember seeing them come in initially? So I left the the VA in 2006 and So five years post 9-11, and I left the VA largely because my dissatisfaction with the way it was working and serving veterans, you know, had reached kind of a a breaking point. And and part of that was personal. I, some of my research had, had, had brought, um, disfavor on me from some parts of the VA Mm -hmm. system. I had done, I had done a study where we looked at the military records of 100 consecutive Vietnam veterans. We, we actually wrote, we did a Freedom of Information Act request to the St. Louis Personnel Department and we got their military records and we matched up the, the actual records with the reports of what they themselves had told us. And we found massive discrepancies. Wow. Um, including some of the, some of the people in the, in, the, in the study had never been to Vietnam. Some had, had told, had grossly exaggerated things like their medals, their activities, even their MOS. Wow. We had several guys who claimed to have been special forces in Vietnam who were not. Um, and, and it's not that that study itself soured me on the VA. It didn't. It, what it did was it pointed out that we needed, to, as a system, we needed to be a little more rigorous because we want to make sure we're given, we're, directing the resources where they need to go, where they really need to go the most. And I was met with uh, a lot of resistance from the VA um, central office, um, individual researchers who were powerful in the field. Um, and, and just to kind of summarize it, it what a message that I received was essentially, Hey, zip it. Nobody wants to hear this. Yeah. There might be some folks out there gaming the system, but keep that quiet because we don't want to risk anything that it, that will damage the funding, damage the yeah, resources the budget. That, that we get. Yep. This thre- this was threatening to some people's empires. To the third biggest part of uh, the U.S. government. Right. And within the VA, there's an ad, there's a, a line item, or at least at the time it was a line item. I don't know how it's done now, but it, the national centers for, for PTSD within the VA system, and there was like seven or eight of them spread around the country, including Honolulu, one in Honolulu. And arguably, one could say, well, at the time I was basically saying, you know, we need to look at this issue. And and they were telling me, shut up. Log it up. Shut up. <laughs> don't publish that, don't f- publish that research. If you do, you're gonna get in trouble. There was an investigation instituted by, instigated by VA central office. Um, I literally got a phone call at home one night about nine o'clock and was told, you will be at the, the VA director's office at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, and you're going to have to answer these questions, I sus- uh, and we need them in writing by the time you arrive. Whoa. So I spent the night working overnight to answer these questions, and they were questions about the study that included things like, why did you do this study? Who funded it? Did it ha- did you have institutional approval? Um those kinds of questions the setup questions the setup questions <laughs> and they needed and if i did have institutional approval i needed to bring that file and what was interesting was is one of my co-authors on that paper was the director of the mental health service line at the va Mm-hmm. And he's the one that called me and said, Oh, we're in trouble, you know, you, you need to do all this stuff. And you need to be at this meeting in the morning, he didn't show up at the meeting himself. The of course next morning. He, didn't.
0: <laughs> he had you to show but up, but
1: the <laughs> one person who did show up, who had my back was the chief of research at the at the VA, and she came in with the file. And, and basically, we had we had all the uh, T's crossed and the eyes dotted. So that got dropped you know the witch hunt was was on it was looking for something yep. and, and it didn't find anything so that ended that but I essentially from that point on um, was under a lot of scrutiny and they, they assigned me kind of you know, she wasn't just mine alone but essentially I had a handler at that point and yep. so I was getting requests for interviews from Washington Post New York Times, BBC, The Economist a lot of you know, national, international news outlets wanted to report on this story, or the, just the larger issue because we'd written some other things uh, on the on the topic, and um, some of it would be approved, some of it would not be approved. Um, I I do remember doing an NPR interview, uh, much like we're doing now, yeah. where it was set up at my home, and and the handler was on the phone, and she she basically had the the ability to forbid me to answer a question, yeah, that was asked or after I had answered a question to strike parts of my question out. It's sad. And I was just like, you know, I, this, this is just this is the federal government acting, behaving as though it's the, the communist government. Um, hello, hello. Hello, hello, <laughs> yeah, and so.
0: Goose step, goose step. <laughs> that's when I left,
1: that's when I left. I, it was just my, my view of the VA at the time was it's just not a serious organization. It's not serious about taking care of veterans. No it's what it wants to do is it wants to pat itself on the back, justify its budgets, and the people with the, with the high-paying you know, leadership jobs and the highfalutin research empires that they had built were not willing to do anything that might put any of that in jeopardy. And wow. so, so I, I stepped away from the VA at that time. Now, let me, let me also just say, the VA does a lot of things right and a lot of things well, and I think it's a different institution than it was then, but I think a lot of these issues still persist.
0: I, I, I always uh, commend your your follow-up to, to cover those people that do work hard in the VA and that are trying to serve people, and they're out there, and they're out there in droves. There are, but, they are out there in but droves. But the system is they're still... They're probably even the majority. The of, system is still fucking broken, and we'll get is. into that yeah. in a, in a it second. It is broken. So tell me the first time you came face-to-face with a combat special operations vet and you you talk to them and you're like, holy shit, this this is extreme. This something's going on.
1: Yeah. So I did I had done some contract work for the Navy pre nine eleven, and I had done some contract and some consulting work for other bits of the parts of the DoD after 9-11 and it was some point um, after 2010 that i was connected through a friend of a friend to somebody who had been at uh, at um in the teams Mm -hmm. and he'd been at the tier one unit Mm -hmm. and we more than anything we just became friends and he you know we we started hanging out and he said you know people say you might be able to help me with some of this stuff and so it became a conversation about what was the stuff and ptsd really wasn't at the top of the stuff (laughs) at the list um it was a variety of other things that we began talking about. Yeah. And then that then the that same friend that had introduced us introduced me to another guy who had been a, a team guy. And that and I found out like, Oh, this is a similar conversation that we're now having <laughs> And so in the process of trying to you know, I, I don't I wasn't their therapist, but I became somebody that they talked to. Um he, both of them lived here in Houston. I lived in Hawaii, but I, I've been commuting to Houston for about 10 years now mm-hmm. every month. So I would see them when I was here and talk to them on the phone when I was at home. And it, and it just became this thing. They introduced me to somebody else, or they would call me and say, Hey, I have a buddy who's going through a rough time. Do you think you could talk with him? Uh, he's a friend of mine, so he's a friend of yours. Okay, sure. Um, and... I could tell you more about that process, but you, you asked about the very first one. Mm-hmm. So what was, what was striking to me was his own words. He was late 30s, and he's telling me, I don't feel like the guy I used to be. Yeah. And what did that include? You know, can I go through the Please, list? Please, let's do it right so now. So clearly traumatic brain injury, which I didn't understand very well at the time, because nobody did. Um, now we know we've got two types of brain injuries. Mm-hmm. We didn't know this. Then and most people still don't know it. One is the, the impact forces that cause concussions, and the other is the shearing forces of blast wave exposure. Yep. Which to me, this is the one thing America needs to know. If I said if there was one point I would want people to know today, it's this special operation forces from, in, from Army, Navy, and a lot of, a lot of folks from Marines. Less so from Air Force, probably, but but maybe more so than I realize, have had enormous exposure to blast waves, and not through combat alone, primarily through training. Yeah. You tell me how many when you did you go through breachers? Yep. Breacher training. Three and a half weeks. Three and a half weeks. And what was each day like? Shotgun days, we were shooting five hundred shells
0: of shotgun point blank range right there. Uh, Breaching days, we'd do three four breaching charges a day. You know, six to eight feet, depending upon the size ignition of the of the slap charge we were putting on, the type of charge we were doing, uh, it, it
1: was it was ridiculous. So the amount of blast wave exposure you got from those three weeks is more before you even got overseas is more than probably any conventional forces get in the course of their training, their whole career. Could be wrong about that, and I'm sure there are exceptions. I'm sure of it, but oh, I'll tell you this one: the the one that for me, my
0: big one that. I keep telling to the VA and they're like was it in combat were
1: you in because they don't understand
0: well no I mean i've I've had three TBI evaluations yet I've yet to see a neurologist they won't they they keep saying they're going to yep. give me a, a yep. neurologist yeah in fact in all three I had two pas and one doc not one of them understood blast wave injuries right. not one of them
1: the first study I that I'm aware of was was the Daniel Pearl study yep. in 2016 mm-hmm and much like Bennett Amalu's work 10 years earlier with concussions, CTE, yeah. CTE, where he was looking, he was a pathologist. He is a pathologist looking at um, brains post mortem. That's what Daniel Pearl is. He's a pathologist looking at brains post mortem. And he worked with a sample of of special forces guys who had committed suicide but not shot themselves in the heads. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a very small, rare, sam- rarefied sample. But he identified a pattern that nobody's ever seen before, and and it's been, now it's been named Interface Astral Glial Scarring. Right. Um, And the first paper was just a series of, of, uh, was a single case series design study of, here's what we found. Now, he, I saw him speak a couple weeks ago, and and clearly the research is now, you know, expanding rapidly, Um, but it's hard research to do, because you need the brains. And, and most people don't donate their brains to science, but now—well, our guys are now. Your guys are. I, I mean, right.
0: t- two team guys already, in their notes said, "You know, I'm messed up. Yeah. It's my brain.
1: Research, here's my right. brain. Boom. They kill him. Right. There. And uh, at the end of the second season of of SEAL Team, the, the CBS TV show, actually told tells a story of yep. that. And that was that 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 character who shot himself in the chest and left the message um, to, to look at his brain, that's, that's a, that's probably primarily based on a real, yeah, a real actual, um, man, um, maybe some comp- composite, you know, other people yeah. in there in terms of the symptoms and difficulties he was having, but we're just on the cusp early stages of understanding this. So you go to the VA, they don't know what, ah, they're, and are going to go ask, back
0: to that story I was telling you, you know, just, and you, you say with training and, and, you know I mean I remember one day I was the RSO On a rocket range and When I was SQT And I had 42 students Each student Shot a law An eighty-four, and two Carl Gustav rounds mm-hmm. Now You're only allowed to shoot Two Carl Gustav rounds In a month Right mm-hmm. So here I am With 42 kids So that's you, you know, you do the math. I can't do the math. I'm an artist. But that's a truckload, and that's like six hours on the range. And then Gold Team was out there. They gave me nine cases of RPGs, and these kids, I didn't want them to go to Afghanistan having never shot an RPG. So I get them the RPGs to shoot, and there's nine cases more. I literally could not think straight for like five days.
1: Yeah, right.
0: And, 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 and I try and explain that to the doctors, and they're like, well, why did you do that? Why didn't you tell your boss or your commanding officer, hey, I can't do this? And I look at her and I said, because there's a war. And these kids have to be able to do this. Mm. And it's my day, my job. And then it just flies right over their head.
1: Well, because they don't know. And partly because I think there's just a, there's an education gap. Yeah, massive. People don't know. Most people, including clinicians at the VA, don't know the difference of what special operation forces do in training compared to conventional forces and they don't know about the blast wave exposure research because it's so new and so what they typically do is they'll ask you a question like so when you were in combat were you ever knocked unconscious were you
0: knocked unconscious and how long how long as if when you're
1: <laughs> unconscious you're timing it
0: <laughs> and and how big was the detonation what was the blast what was the site was it of 200 pounds 500 pounds what was right. it right and it's just like are you fucking kidding me? Yeah,
1: those questions are impossible to answer for most people and and they don't even begin to touch on the amount of
0: Well, there's certain damage. guys out there like my friend Pete Scobell, which TBI actually drove him out of his, you know, the out of the command and 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 when he went in and was complaining, they're like, you know, we we don't have any data. So he went and did all the research himself, came up with a protocol, suggested, and he discovered every single dude at the command, he he suspects has TBI right Mm -hmm. as well as every other tier one unit and most other you know if you have any combat I mean
1: it's probably almost automatic if you if you if you do the training right
0: right right away yeah all right so before before we go on do you have anything more on TBI
1: well yes and no I was going to start on this whole list of things that I started to see
0: within TBI
1: no no Oh,
0: the other one. So we're going to finish the other right. eight. Yeah, we were talking so. about the first few the, operators the, the, I talked to. Yeah, and what you, what you were hearing. But let me just jump in real quick. I got to do these ads for my, my sponsors who, thank God, I have them in my life. They're they're wonderful. Uh, the first one is uh, I just want to give a shout-out to all the folks at Onnit. Um, you know, I, I say it over and over and over again, and, and what this show is essentially about is is about really about Understanding the human condition, and I believe that once you can do that, once you understand how you think, how you function, how you perform physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, then you, you're you're ready to start tackling you know the greater questions in life, and who am I, and why am I here. Well, meeting Aubrey Marcus and, and and coming to understand what he does at Onnit, uh, they're down that same path, right? It's all about human optimization, and they do so with supplements and training and all this. So, one of the main things that I've I've taken away from their their vast array of products is is Alpha Brain, and I take Alpha Brain every morning when I wake up. And just the, the the mental alacrity it gives me is is, is substantial. Uh, I, I really believe this is a product that can help people. Um, is it going to cure all and make you a hundred percent? Especially if you have TBI and you've you've got a few concussions in your past as well too. Uh, no, but it's going to help. And so, you know, you you start to experiment with on uh, in, it in and Alpha Brain and. You got to give it a, a, a real effort. Don't just guy, you know, take it, you know, 4 days and hope that all of a sudden you're going to be sharp all day long. You're going to, you know, your your recall ability and your your ability to fo- stay focused and all that is just going to improve off the charts. No, you got to be invested like any anything in life, you've got to be dedicated to the process itself. So, you know, what I recommend is is go to onit.com. That's o n n i t.com. Go get yourself a, a, a bottle of Alpha Brain and go through the whole bottle, track your course, track how it works, write some notes on it, uh, get invested in your own optimization in your life, and I promise you, you're going to see a serious difference. Now, now here's the kicker too. Onit currently is offering the golden ticket in every single uh, Alpha Brain you buy, which gives you potential at a free award and then it also enters you into Onit's. Uh, big prize where if you win, you get uh, you and another person get to go down to On at HQ do a whole array of, of, of fun activities uh, at, at HQ, take yoga, you train with some of the best, most elite athletes that we have in the country. Uh, I think uh, you're going to hang out with Aubrey. You're going to go hang out on the on river in Austin there. Just a wonderful, incredible educational weekend. Uh, and it'll also help you personally because uh, I know Aubrey is, is dedicated to helping people emotionally and spiritually as well too. That's another reason I'm digging on him and we've become such good friends. So head over to onit.com o n n i t dot com. Town Frog Logic sent you. Check out Alpha Brain. All right, the second one is Wise Company. Um, you know, for the better part of my adult life, I've been training and preparing for the worst possible situations you can be in as a human being, which is combat and war. Um, but I also recognize having just gone through uh, Hurricane Dorian, that uh, that catastrophe that can ultimately change your life forever is is could happen tomorrow, next month. Um, You know, we could have wildfires. You could have power outages, uh, storms, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes. Hell, if you even want to go so far as, you know, who knows what happens. Maybe if uh, you're a firm believer the zombie apocalypse is coming, man, are you prepared for that? But more importantly, is your family prepared? Uh, if you were to face a, a challenge where you, there was no supermarket, you couldn't get respotted, you didn't have, you know, you ate everything in your cupboard. How long could you actually last? But how long could you take care of your family? And that's why Wise Company is is the number one in, in food preparation uh, company out there, in my opinion, hands down. They have uh, many of their products have a shelf life of 25 plus years. Uh, Their food tastes great. It's all freeze-dried. I've been to the facility in Utah. It's a fantastic facility. They bring in great chefs to make sure the meals taste great, and I've had more than my fair share of shitty meals, trust me, I've eaten more nasty MREs in horrible places than any one man should have to, uh, and um, this food is great. They have great camping meals, if so if you're just interested in gra- buying some great camping meals that you can cook on, to, on the move while you're out on a weekend hike or a day hike, man, simple, easy to use. Um but this company is legit and, and 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 I stand behind it fully, not only because it's an American-made company, because they give you a 90-day uh, money-back guarantee, because of the quality of taste, the shelf life, the packaging capability, but more importantly, it's the company and the level of product and the sophistication and the dedication they have to, to all of their customer base, man. And I'm telling you, all you got to do is go to wisefoodstorage.com, that's wisefoodstorage.com, Enter in your promo code FROGLOGIC and you get 25% off everything they have. Everything they have. So here's what you ought to do. Today, as soon as you done listening to this podcast, take a real hard look. Are you prepared? Is your family prepared for a, a national catastrophic emergency, a regional emergency, just emergency that, you know, whatever you might face? And, and can you feed your family, right? Can you feed your children? If the answer is no, go check them out. Buy one bucket, one thir- three-day pack, or buy just some camping meals to test it out and see if you like the taste or you like the quality. And then once you do that, go back, get yourself a three-month, six-month supply, whatever you think you need. Go big, do the one-year supply. Never have to worry about it again for 25 years, right? Put in Frog Logic, 25% off all everything that you get. You can't beat that deal. It's a fantastic deal. That's wisefoodstorage.com, dot com. Promo code froglogic twenty five percent off. Hoo ya hey, wise company. Be ready. Be wise. Sorry about that, bud. Had to take a little break. Had to mm-hmm. had a had to get a little word from our sponsors. Thank God for them. They Absolutely. their appreciation for the human condition. Uh, as as I'm sure. Um, as we get into this next part, we're going to really dive deep into those things as well, too. So you, you were in, we talked about your first conversation, you know, one ne- and then another one, and you're, you're hearing a consistency. And, and we went into one of the main things you heard
1: was traumatic brain injury. What are the others? Yeah, why don't I, why don't I list them yeah. quickly and just, just, just and we go back and discuss them. So TBI, sleep apnea, sleep disturbance. Endocrine dysfunction, low testosterone, yep, very common. Uh, Pain, chronic pain, headaches, cognitive memory problems, (laughs) um, substance abuse. Not everyone, but some psychological issues related to anxiety, guilt, a lot of survivor's remorse. Uh, You know, not so much necessarily PTSD per se, but but really, a lot of guys really bothered by missions they missed out on or the you know the guy that was i was going to be on that that helo and it went down but you know my orders got changed at the last minute somebody was there instead of me those kinds of yeah existential uh moments um stigmatism some stigma but mostly just a feeling of now and, and a lot of the guys that i work worked with were either later career or were recently out, so the transition. Mm-hmm. It's just, the, the challenges are massive, both in terms of reintegrating with family. Um, if there is still a family there to reintegrate, right. um, the divorce rate is probably 90%. Still. Um, wow. Massive. And then the, you know, what, who am I gonna be? What am I, what am I now? Identity. My identity. I was I was doing important life and death activities for the last umpteen years. And now, who am I? Now, what do I do? How do I pay the bills? And then you have the who who where do I fit in? Where's where's my team? You know, Orthopedic. What part of the team am I? Orthopedic problems. Uh, anger problems. Uh, let me see what I've left out. <laughs> Uh, people are listening and are like, what? Can I, can I check my, uh, I know it's not cool. to look. No, notes, no,
0: but, absolutely. It's um, all, it's cool on my show. Right. Maybe not on other people, but everything's cool on my show. Okay,
1: good. That's why people listen to my show. Depression. Uh, a lot of guys are the worry and the rumination and the stress about things. And, and one of the things I've heard over and over again is this would never have bothered me. Yeah. In the past. Now, you know, I've got to reschedule something, and it's flipping me out. I don't yep. understand that. Yep. Um, being on guard, like I can't Hyper sleep. Vigilance. I can't yeah. sleep because I can't, you know, turn it off. Never know when somebody might come through the door. Um, nightmares, teeth grinding. Yeah. Do you grind your teeth? Oh, yeah, Dave, absolutely. Yeah? Do you wear a night guard? Mouth uh, guard? I do, yeah. Good, yeah. Cool. Um, a lot of guys, you know it, it, with the sleep is the the jet lag and the shifting sleep schedules and, and even in post well, you're experiencing it yourself, you know, the travel that you do yep. as a civilian. Well yeah. you're all over the country. you just mentioned Alaska and tonight you're going up to New Jersey, New Jersey. Um, let's see. I mentioned the survivor's guilt, uh, the transition, loss of purpose, sexual health. yeah is a challenge for a lot of guys yep. um, in issues with intimacy, especially if the marriage is suffering or the marriage is, has has broken. Um, you know, there's a lot of behaviors that are common in the teams that don't don't necessarily fit in so well in civilian. Moral life. ambiguity, moral ambiguity.
0: <laughs> um, That's my term.
1: <laughs> I want to throw that one in there. You want to define that for, for
0: folks? Sure. Uh, absolutely. I'd love to. Yeah. So uh, as you go into this program, you're coming from a particular state where your sense of morality is pretty fixed. Uh, I I, I don't know too many guys, you know, maybe it's been it's fluctuated somewhat because of wherever they grew up in the socioeconomic realities. And, you know, like Remy Adeleke grew up in, in Brooklyn or the Bronx, I think, and was selling drugs. So. You know, there's certainly that, but there's a grand sense of, of loyalty and commitment and an overall sense of good and, and, and bad, if you will, good and evil. Uh, but when you go into the teams and you go into that program, man, you're you're being programmed to be able to uh, uh, be violent, a violent human being. And, and our friend Dan Luna is hopefully going to begin his, uh, I think, groundbreaking work on, oh, on that. He's gonna,
1: of, what he's going to do is going to be... It's going to change. It's going to. He's going to change. A, uh,
0: yeah. He's going to change a lot. A lot of stuff about violence. The man is a thinker. He really is, and and you know to become violent, what that means, and what you have to give up, and your desire to want to be violent, yep. your desire to want to kill, your desire to want to be around other men that kill, what that means, uh, what it means to be a warrior, what it means, what what uh, um, what. Um, the spectrum of what's acceptable and not acceptable within your peer group right uh, fluctuates dramatically, and, and you begin to start to pick and choose. Well, today— Today I'll follow this rule. I'll, and tomorrow I'll follow this, because mm-hmm. the only rule I have to follow is that I when I'm asked to go kill somebody, I do it, and then I don't get my buddy killed. Yep. That's it.
1: Yep. That's the only real rule. Yep. And, and when you're operating with that kind of perspective and framework— from what I've seen and what makes sense to me is it becomes awfully easy to to take some shortcuts in other areas of of, of moral I don't know even know if it's shortcuts
0: life. I don't I don't even it doesn't become relevant yeah it doesn't yeah. become relevant
1: once it's okay to to kill somebody how is it not okay to drink drink six beers afterwards six beers or try t- sixty or sixty sixteen exactly.
0: shots at the kilo or or to use drugs yeah. or to to keep the high going of, of what it means to live in that space. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and that's one thing that I would like to talk about here in a little bit, uh, once we get into more in depth of the special operations syndrome that you just classified there.
1: Um, and you, the, you, just used the word. Yeah. And so let me, the word, I, the word I've been using is operator syndrome. Operator syndrome. Cause it wasn't just, Oh, PTSD. It mm-hmm. wasn't just, Oh, depression. It was this combination of things. And, and when
0: you told me that word, when you sent that out and in, in the Synchrony Programs you know, material that I've been showing around, and you coined it operator syndrome, it, it was like a, a revelation for me.
1: And, you know, it's a term I coined in my own head, but I don't think I was the first one to think of it. I talked, you know, early on, I spoke with a physician assistant out at Virginia Beach, and he used the term. And I was like, oh, Hey, I use that term. He's like, yeah, so do I. Other people do too. About a, about two months ago, I was talking with a physician out at uh, Fort Bragg. We are talking on the phone and I was kind of going through things and used that term. And he got very excited. He goes, we use that term. So I, you know, that's a, it's an obvious term that I think a lot of people just sort of naturally have started to use but the operators don't know it you guys know it right because the, we've seen it you've it, seen it and it's unique it's a, it's not a pattern you expect to see no and and something like simply something as simple as sleep apnea or less low testosterone you do not expect to see that in a healthy fit 35 40 year old man no it's just it's like it's it's striking we we actually Um, have built our program, the synchrony program with that cluster of difficulties in mind. Well, let's, let's take a
0: step back though. I want to just right before we get into it and I know we need to go there right, but just tell me what the catalyst for you, how many guys in, how many were you like, there needs to be a a special, there needs to be a unique program for the individual with operator syndrome Mm -hmm. And how do we do that? When was that Mm -hmm. moment for you? That aha moment? Mm -hmm. Oh,
1: maybe seven, eight guys in. Seven or eight in. Wow. 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 Were you thinking higher? Yeah. Or lower? Higher. 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 For sure. Yeah. I've probably, I've probably consulted to maybe 50, 60 guys as well as a lot of spouses. No. And I've seen this pattern over and over again. And in fact, sometimes I just don't even start with questions. I just, I'm, uh, I might just start telling somebody, hey, here's what you're dealing with. And th- they'll be like, wow, you're a mind reader. You're a fortune teller. <laughs>
2: um,
0: it, it, what's remarkable to me in that state, Chris, is that guys, because we were so hyper protective of that. Right? They think they're the only ones. They're the only ones. Yeah. and And we're all feeling it. Yeah. And, and, but it's just not
1: okay to say, right. Hey man, I'm fucked up too. You're fucked up. We're all fucked yeah. up together. I mean, for a man to say I have low testosterone is a hard thing, <laughs> very hard thing. Cause yep. that's like saying somehow I'm less of a man Yeah. in, in, in the, in the mind of a lot of people. And that's where the stigma comes in. Yeah. And um, that's one of the first things I, I do. I ask, I ask guys, well, when was the last time you had your, had your blood labs looked at? Yeah. When was the last time you had a full panel of endocrine mm-hmm. uh, readings? never because if, if you never. have because if you haven't had it done in the last six months that's the next thing you need to do
0: oh i went i i had a physical last the other week and there yeah. they said i'm good because yeah.
1: i'm still benching
0: 350 right. pounds right. i'm still running right. run, running six minute miles right i can't sleep i can't eat i can't go to the bathroom correctly i can't have intimacy emotions i can't I, have sex i can't have sex i'm hyper vigilant i want to beat the shit out of everybody every day
1: but other than that, I'm uh, but, fine. But other than that, I'm doing great, man. Yeah, Thanks yeah, for asking. Yeah, yeah. We actually, I've seen this now so many times. I've written up a, with some of my colleagues, um, including Morgan. We've written up a descriptive paper uh, that's just, uh, I think, is is about to be accepted at a really at a good at a nice psychiatry and medicine journal. It's a joint medicine psychiatry. Wow. Uh, journal.
0: So the aha, seven guys in, and then what? What? What precipitated you go? Well, how do we get these guys help? Because obviously you've, you, with your experience in the VA, you knew they couldn't do it. And you, you've, you've been around, you'd ask enough questions, what what veterans charities out there can provide it or whatever.
1: Right, I think the, the, the next aha moment after that was when I was out at the first annual Navy SEAL Foundation Health Conference and met up with a couple of the psychologists who were there from Virginia Beach, a guy named George Steffian and, and Joe Bonvi. Um, who are two psychologists who I've been just utterly impressed with all the way along. Mm-hmm. And we struck up a conversation and a friendship that it, that it actually had been a few phone calls before we met in person there, but we met in person. And, and I, was, we were, I and, and my colleague, Alok Madan, who's here, here in Houston, were talking about what we kind of thought the syndrome looked like and kind of some thoughts about the need for the program and how maybe we could develop a program for that syndrome here in Houston. And Joe and George, they, you know, they, they got very excited and they say, wow, we've been thinking the same way. We wrote a, a white paper that we floated up to the Admiral and for, for describing the same kind of need for a program on the civilian side. Department of Defense now has a few programs, uh, the NICO program, um, the National Intrepid Center of Excellence. Um, there's a few other programs around the country, but but they're hard to get into because they don't have enough spots. Right, they're only available to active duty. So veterans have have nothing. And their diagnosis suck. Well, there's some limitations <laughs> in, in terms of how they roll out. I'm and, sorry,
0: <laughs> I just have too many friends that have gone through, and you know, having friends that go up there that have been, you know, four, five, six combat deployments plus workups
1: and Nico says, no, you're fine. Yeah, and they don't do too much treatment. It's, it's like you go there for a few weeks and then they send you home with a list of problems, maybe, and good luck yeah. getting, finding a way to treat those problems. So some guys have had some good experiences there, but um, yeah, so we, we wanna be, uh, we, that's a, that's a, there's a huge gap in the, in the treatment healthcare needs. For, for your community, and we I think we're facing uh, a wave of retirements from special forces that started a few years ago.
0: Well, what? Wait till the nine eleven babies graduate and, and or, or retire, and you and I were talking last night at dinner. Man, this is going to go all the way into twenty twenty seven. Yeah, because when you look at the I mean, we wait, were,
1: which which going to twenty twenty
0: seven? The the wave of retirements, wave of, retirements. Of, of combat veterans. Long-lasting combat veterans, right? Because if you came in, if you went through buds in '07, you finish, you know, by 2009, you get your do a workup. You're in combat '2010, do another workup. You're in combat '2012, and then it starts tapering off, right? And that yeah. was kind of the last big way. But I mean, I mean, unless unless, unless you're we, at tier le- one
1: level, or know? unless we have another boom going on in the world, <sighs> which could happen tomorrow. Could
0: happen. Uh, Lebanon's breaking out, right? Don't even get me started on yeah. all that. But so you, you see this, and, and when did you realize that in the civilian world, in the charity-based place, that the, the, the
1: capabilities were just utterly deficient? Well, I don't know. I just, I don't, you know, when it came time to refer people to a program, I just didn't know where to refer people. Yeah. So I've done a lot of the coaching and a lot of the, the mentoring um, myself just on a pro bono basis there's not there's just not good places to refer Nothing. to yeah. and so you know then it came down to well shoot if there's no place to re- send no place that's really going to be appropriate and and aware because that's the other thing I mean there there's certainly plenty of great health programs around the country but they're not specialized and I and I, they certainly don't hit, all of these things and they wouldn't understand and yeah. so having that contextualized understanding of what special forces are what it means with what, what what the guys and the and the wives go through and the families so how putting all that together we were just like you know shoot we need to we there isn't anything we need to create one so we we've done that here at houston methodist hospital and here in, in town
0: now let me ask you this what when when you when you think about and it's called the synchrony program. Yes. And and can you just talk about who are the primary people involved with it and where it is and how what what the the idea behind it is? Yeah.
1: Well, it's so yeah, so it's the synchrony program. It's based within the psychiatry and behavioral health program at Houston Methodist Hospital, which is right here down in the Texas Medical Center, on the 25th floor of the Smith Tower. Hmm. And the idea is that it's an intensive Outpatient program that's heavily therapeutic assessment. So, let's say when you're ready to come, you 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 come, you stay at a hotel here in town. Um, we actually have a nonprofit partnership uh, with some with some former Navy folks, um, the Quick Reaction Foundation, headed by Clayton Hagerman and, and Garrett Golden was was the, was a founder of that program with them. So they their local program set up to help special forces, all branches, mm-hmm. and they will pay travel and lodging and meals for, for folks while they're coming through our program. So the program itself is intensive, outpatient, meaning about 40 hours a week, Wow! and you might come for a week, you might come for two weeks, you might be here for a month or, or more. The idea is we're gonna, we're gonna evaluate everything, every domain that I just described to you as best we can. We're gonna do neuroimaging of the brain. We're gonna do genetic testing to, to, to help us understand what medications are best. We're going to do neurocognitive assessment based, you know, performance-based assessment so we can, so we can understand your strengths and weaknesses. We're good. In terms of memory, um, intellectual functioning. Um, a value of that is it sets a, um, a baseline for the for for future so if there's changes we can know about it we're going to do full panel of endocrine panels of course sleep sleep assessment um, all the psychological psychiatric assessments that that makes sense Um we're, we're looking at um, pain and we're developing uh, um, we're looking at family functioning we're looking at, at life and transition life roles and transition so kind of the whole package that is operator syndrome. We're gonna we're gonna evaluate every domain of it, and it won't manifest the same for everybody, obviously. Yeah. Um, but we're gonna begin to address each of those um, those issues as soon as we identify it. So let's say on day two, we get your blood panels back, and your your one of your thyroid is out of range. We're gonna address that right away. That we're gonna start addressing that. Mm-hmm. Um, we might even have a plan before you arrive because we do an extensive medical records review right we'll probably advise you on some things you should do before you arrive like get your get your blood labs done in advance so the, from day one we have the we mm-hmm. have those available and we're, we're gonna put together a plan develop a plan over the course of one to four weeks that's specific to you and your needs and in your family um Your wife will be invited to join for parts of this if you have a wife or your girlfriend or your significant other. Um, If you have children and they they need a treatment, we're actually partnered, affiliated with the University of Texas program that I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, the Trauma and Resilience Center at UT. So they treat children there. Wow. Um, They do outpatient therapy for spouses. So we've got a a nice um, relationship there to refer back and forth. If somebody comes in from out of town, which we expect most of our most of, the, most of the, the folks that come through the program will be from out of town, we'll work to develop a plan and find resources and identify those resources in your home community mm-hmm. so that when you go home, it's not just, here's your list of problems, good luck. It's, here's your list of problems, here's the treatments we've started, and here's the five different providers in your area that we want you to start, start with. Right. And we will stay in touch via telemedicine. So we'll have ongoing consultations after you get home, and in, in an ideal world, you know, we will we will uh, follow you as as much as needed for the rest of your life. That's that's the aspiration. Wow. So we've got we've got all this baseline data now. So you you come back in two years or five years or twenty years, we've got you know we know you and we know your health patterns and we know that in twenty twenty you're. Cognitive functioning was here, and then when you're 75 years old, we've got something to, to baseline it to. Now, let me let me talk about funding, because how is this funding? This is not something the, the VA has agreed to pay for. and Of course you know, not. At some point, we hope they will with the Mission Act, and we'll, we'll, we'll certainly pursue that. We know insurance companies aren't going to pay for this because they don't pay for this kind of comprehensive Now treatment, and and by the way, part of this is not just about being comprehensive, but not fragmented. Everything is in the same location. Care providers are talking to each other. It's a team-based approach. So you're not telling the same story to, to, to five different people. You tell it once and everybody gets together. And that second. was my favorite part of the VA right? process. Right? I love that. Yeah. I
0: love telling my, my horror stories right. 25 different times to people who don't give a shit.
1: Right, and the neurologist never actually speaks to the psychiatrist. Never actually speaks to the to the nurse practitioner or the psychologist or the physical therapist or the endocrinologist. Here, these people are actually talking to each other. They're actually sitting down together and reviewing and discussing as a group. Wow. So we do have some small bit of funding now. The Texas Veterans Commission... Um, funded a grant we submitted so they have they've awarded us five hundred thousand dollars for one year wow that's big it's big it gets us started now that there are restrictions on that funding and what are those we were only allowed to treat veterans so no active duty and we're only allowed to treat texas residents special operations special operations who are who are veterans texas residents so do you hear
0: that gents If, if if you are struggling and you Don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. This is the program for you. You need to call over to Methodist. You need to call, and we'll get a number, and we'll get an email right here for you once, Chris, at the end here. But you need to get up and get there because it's taken care of. So get in. Go get your shit squared away so you can better serve your family, but more importantly, serve
1: yourself. If you're special forces, we want to help you. Now, right now, our funding only covers— Texas residents, right? But our aspiration and our intention is to raise funding at the so that we can tr- serve everybody, uh, everybody, all from all over the country. And this is
0: just this is not only special operations in in all the major branches, but it's also the CIA. Correct. We're talking about uh, other units too, correct? If other you, special it,
1: mission units, yeah. right? We have we're, we're defining it pretty broadly, and we want to include the intelligence community because the even. The VA doesn't serve them at all at all they're yeah. not eligible no nope. so there's not even any kind of program for them and most of the nonprofit organizations don't think about about the the, 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 the shadow warriors yeah. out there yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. it's a shame right so so we're we're just getting started um uh, of course a lot a lot's going to depend on our ability to attract funding and and to, and to build from there uh, but we're we're remaining optimistic
0: well i i can we, tell you and I'll, my listeners you know i i had one of my best friends hit crisis uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a guy that I don't even, I don't want to. Let me just put it this way this is one of the most exceptional human beings I've ever met in my entire life. Legendary. Legendary. And his dedicated service to this country for 27 years in the SEAL teams uh, is um, miraculous. Uh, and in his crisis, he didn't know where to go. He didn't have any options. Uh, and I was able to call Chris and say, Hey, if I, if I can get the money, can you take him immediately? He said, absolutely. I went out, I got a private donor for him and we got him there and saved his life. And it, and it was rapid too. It wasn't delayed. It wasn't anything. It was, it happened immediately and the change that you and I have seen in him, uh, is nothing short of miraculous uh, and has given them a new purpose in life. And I just can't say enough about the program and the people that are involved in this. And, and you know, and that's why I, it's, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of different charities over the years and, and some great ones, man. And um, But this is the one, you know, after, for me, it all changed when, when my, my mentor in a team's Bruce Cunningham died. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a result of drinking himself to death. I remember
1: that, yeah.
0: And for me, you know, here's another guy. You know, also 28 years in the teams, working for the agency as well too. And how does a guy that influenced so many and was such a great operator and such a great frog man, how does he hit a point where he he feels his only escape is to drink himself to death, which is not easy. So literally commit suicide through alcohol um, on top of all the other prob- problems he was dealing with and, and for, for me that's when I realized because you know, we did several interventions on him we did two big ones we got him in the VA and with 14 days he walked out went to one meeting with some you know, kid social worker who had no idea what a Navy SEAL was and never went back and, and ultimately killed and, and that for me was the wake up call that, for me, was the moment where I'm like, all right, there's a lot of good people trying to do good things, but they're, they they don't have the capacity to cover all of it in one focused way that makes a difference. And, and it hasn't slowed down. It's intensified. The suicides. Uh, just lost another close friend of mine, Gabe, recently overdosed about two months ago. Uh, tragically, uh, was a, a part of... Uh, uh, the platoons during Red Wing uh, suffered from some very substantial survivors' guilt uh, and could never shake that. And I'm just thinking to myself, man, had this program, you know, been totally up and running, could we got him in and change this life? Which I believe it could have, but I, I can't imagine how many in your your guys' estimation, how many how many guys are out there, or even women who served in special operations, how many how many people are out there in crisis right now? Do you think?
1: You know what, I have no way of knowing that. Yeah. I don't think anybody does. Let's flip the question this way. What, pers- what are the numbers of special forces? that are out there. So, whew, it's, separated it's, from the service now. Oh, I don't know. No, does anybody.
0: I don't I've never seen it. I've never seen the that yeah. the data. Yeah. I mean, that's something that should have been at the Naval Special Warfare I'm, thing you, you went to just went to. I'm going to I'm going to The just, numbers from not only those numbers should be there, but the numbers of how many special operations suicides have this past year. I just saw the stat that that said uh uh 5 we've lost 541 so far, this year alone, 60,000 in the last 10 years. Not all special operations people, and probably a lot of Vietnam vets and stuff like I understand that most.
1: You're talking about veteran suicide, veterans, veterans, right.
0: but I'm talking about special operations. Right. And you know, at that, you go to that conference, it, it drives me nuts. The whole focus is on suicide. You know, and I understand, man, there's a lot of good things that they put out, like you said. But, man, in my, in my estimation, I think it's bullshit, Chris, that you have a function like this. And they're not saying, giving hard data numbers on how many guys are killing themselves. It's
1: possible nobody knows.
0: Wow, I never thought about that. It's
1: possible nobody knows. I don't know how many special operation forces, personnel there are spread around the country who are, you know, no longer in the service. But I'm going to guess it's somewhere between thirty and 50,000. Could be. So we're not talking about – I mean, we are talking about a niche group, but we're not talking about a super small niche group. Right. And especially a
0: group that, you know, has taken the majority of the workload for the last 18, 19 years. Uh, The brunt of combat. The brunt of combat, hands down. I mean, when you have guys at the Tier 1 units that have – what, that master sergeant that died a couple of years ago in Syria, had tw- it was his 29th deployment at Delta. You know, you've got guys over at neck right now that have 22, 23, 25. There are guys that I know over at the agency that have 30-plus deployments.
1: And that doesn't even account for the number of missions within each deployment. No. Where you're going out three or four or five times a week. 600. Seven hundred combat missions. Imagine uh, I, what that does. I, I know some with over a thousand. A thousand
0: combat missions. Yeah, think about what that does right. to the human body, right. the human mind. Right. And that and there's no definitive program in place. Well, there is now in Synchrony, for those guys to to to
1: deprogram. Right. It's kind of amazing when you put it in those terms.
0: Well, the the yeah. the one I give because I'm you know I, I'm speaking around the country all the time. People like, you know, Rut. What do you think about the suicide? What do you think about the VA? And you know, what's the solution? And I tell them, I say, listen, if you have an operator that you teach that you teach to walk a thousand miles into the woods, how the hell is that guy getting out? We well, got to teach him to walk out too. Right. And there is no. Separation program in in the service because that's not their job. Their job is to make killers and more fighters, and that's what they do. They do very well and they've done great, but it's not their job. So whose job is it to teach us to walk out of the woods?
1: And it could be the VA at some point, but the VA is not there yet. And then the question is, does does the VA embrace that as a as a mission? And I'm going to tell you. This, this may surprise you, it may surprise your listeners, but one of the, one of the pushbacks that we've gotten um, heavily is, um, in fact, we've gotten it from some potential donors, we've gotten it from some of the leaders in the, in the system, and um, even from some of the folks that you know, had, had been heavily involved in running NICO. What they said is, what do you mean you're starting a program for special operation forces? That's not fair. That's not justice. We need to have programs for all veterans. So we've made we've come back, we always make the argument, wait a minute, yes, we should have programs for all veterans. Yes, we should serve everybody who served. Yes, we need to take care of all veterans. But some veterans have unique needs.
0: Oh, I, it's And, it's and we need to have
1: programs that address those unique needs. Well,
0: it's, many of these freaking programs won't even let you go in if you have any any semblance of alcoholism, functional alcoholism, drug addiction. Any, They won't even let you in the door on them. I had a friend who, who got into a, a space and I, I was on the phone all day every day for a week, remember that? A week straight yep. trying to find, and I found one at Audie Murphy here in Texas, right? And, and it was a 90-day program and they're like no he's got to get in line and i'm going this guy has five combat deployments and, you know and he's got major major issues right now and then he's got well the only way he can jump the line is if he walk in and he says i'm going to kill myself or i'm going to hurt someone else
1: <laughs> otherwise he can't come and how many other people get coached up like that uh, i mean i don't yeah know. so i mean we literally had a we had a site visit from a major funder Earlier this year, who we thought would fund us, and they were talking about funding us, um, but it became a deal breaker when they learned we were going to serve only the special operation community, not all veterans. Wow. And we try to make the argument well, but the need is different, the context is different, the dose of damage. Is different. The dose of damage alone. The dose of damage alone. Alone. And that's really all it's about.
0: And, and, but for some reason, it's this total inclusiveness. We and, must have prizes yeah, for all. Yeah, all must have prizes. You know, and 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 that's frustrating for us. One because one, you know, and, and I hate to say, and, and I get asked this question quite a bit: is you know, if somebody, if somebody, you know, and I'm, I'll never forget, I was doing some counseling post Parkland, right? And I was with, with this family and a couple about eight kids who were there, and the mother looks at me and she goes, "Well, what's the difference if, if, you know, isn't isn't all the trauma the same relevance, right?" And I said, "Well, let me ask you this: the girl who was in, you know, the other side of the school uh, who got rushed out and was safe and didn't see any, you know, any uh, catastrophic injuries or anything like that." is her trauma the same as the kid who had the brains of their best friend splattered all over their face? Is the trauma the same? And, 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 you know, and she was sat there in shock and, and as like, she didn't expect me to say that she wanted me to say, yes, it's all the same. We right. need to treat everybody right. the same. But unfortunately hierarchies exist and, and how the metrics of, of, of trauma are different and, and how it affects people are different. And not yeah. that their trauma is less important, but the intensities can be very different, and over prolonged periods of time, it's not even close. Right.
1: I think as a, as a society, we've become preoccupied with this notion of social justice, yeah. Which which somehow wants to say we're all the same, we've all experienced the same things, and we should all be treated the same. And you know, realistically, that's, that's it's an not, impossibility. That's it doesn't exist. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, all right, so. <sighs> Where, where, uh, what are the next steps for Synchrony, and and how, what are what are your guys' plans? What what's your plan of attack to get the message out? What's your plan of attack for funding and fundraising and all those things? Right.
1: Well, right now we are hoping to get referrals from Texas residents or of Texas residents. We want to. We we've got capacity and we've got funding to treat guys. Right now, um, we just need them to, to come to us. Uh, we need people who who are listening now, who might know somebody uh, who, who fits that to, to come our way, to send them our way. We have a uh, the hospital, Methodist Hospital has a, a PR uh, plan in place. And I think you know there's some there's a major TV network that's interested in doing a feature. Um, there's a uh, NFL football team that I think is may support us. But none of that's been finalized yet, so a lot of a lot of things are still under development. And I think this spring we will do, we will launch a the hospital, will launch a campaign to raise funds. Um, okay. And you know, Houston Methodist Hospital is the number one ranked hospital in the state of Texas, so they're not fooling around. Uh, we've got a really good team of of, of, of support folks there. Um, and, and you know what? I want to go back to something you you were talking about the fellow the. the, the the gentleman that came in to the program mm-hmm. and, and, and the, the legendary Jesus. fellow who, who had his life turned around, it, it went both directions. I wanna, I wanna tell you that the, the treatment team at Methodist, when, when they met him and they worked with him day after day over the course of a month, I think his first time he was there for five weeks, mm-hmm. it was a profound experience for them wow. as care providers they had like you know they didn't have my background or my experience but they had me coaching them and they had uh, actually george steffian one of the psychologists out in virginia beach um on the phone as a consultant but man this this guy was like they i can't even find the words they they, (laughs) they you know they're they're all in now they're like we want to do more of this this is what we want to do this was an incredible experience for us to have the honor and privilege to work with this with this gentleman. And the changes that they saw in him relative to where he was when he started, you know, were, 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 were profound. As were his, you know, some of the issues and, and things he came in the door with in terms of just like they'd never met anybody who'd done the things he'd done, seen the things he'd seen and, and still comported himself with the... Uh, um, the manner that he did and and i think that's an
0: important thing you know is people have to recognize that you know you have so many of these individuals that have 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 sacrificed so much for so long they're in and around us and they are comporting themselves they are managing as we see and they they in many cases they're the representation of what we what we what we believe to be a hero, right? They're, the, they're right. the real heroes, and and that's that's a that's a distinction that weighs heavily on these guys. So that they try, they're exhausting their willpowers every single day to prop that up, while everything else is crumbling mm-hmm. behind the scenes, right? In in the corners of their mind, and and man, it's just. It's not like all of a sudden you're going to be like, oh, that guy's really got issues. We, You know, it, it, these red flags are going to be going off all over the place. It could be somebody you're like, wow, that dude's totally squared away when in fact he's he's an, he's a mess, right? And I see it all the time, right? Whether it's guys that are out doing training or speaking or whatever and they come across in these wonderful, very inspirational ways, but behind the scenes they're caving in.
1: And yet he was still inspirational, to them
0: and yet even still even even in in that capacity
1: even in his moment of deepest darkest crisis he was inspiring everybody around him
0: and that's what the culture of special operations is all about Mm -hmm. right it's about that inspiration to fight it's just now man the fight we're in is is so much more complex for us yeah and I and I think you guys represent the real opportunity. And there's some other programs, you know, uh, Warriors Healing Heart in Texas, too, set up by some Delta guys, the Sacred Heart in Atlanta. They're doing some good work.
1: You know, and, and I I got to throw that caveat back out there. I don't know every program that's out there, so yeah. I, I don't want to be representing, like, we're the only ones doing it. We're just the only ones I know of. Right.
0: Well, I, I definitely don't know any that are on the magnitude of of, of how – Medically comprehensive it is, right, and and the assessment—that's really what it is. It's the assessment capability, the thoroughness, and then the collective team. For me, that's everything. Like, and and what I I know for guys once they show up, because remember, there's always this stigma in my head. I, you know, I I might have gone to the VA like my VA experience, right? I went in in the process over three and a half years, and. You know, my first time I met, my first visit, I met with like eight, eight doctors. Out of the eight, you know, six had never even heard of a Navy SEAL. And the two that had knew a little bit, but not a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, the debilitating nature of, of that identity crisis, when you're faced with that, you don't even know what I've done. How are you going to ever treat me versus walking into synchrony and going, we know who you are. We know what you've done. We know what you're suffering from, and this is our special operations team that's going to help you. Yeah, that's yep. everything. Yeah,
1: and this this team, I would say, I'll, I'll add this. This is a group of people I've worked with for many years. These are not just kids out of school. <laughs> the director of or the chair of psychiatry uh, is a has been a friend and colleague of mine for over twenty years. We were in Charleston together. The Um, vice chair of psychiatry is a friend and colleague of mine for about 15 years. The, some of the other care providers there are people I've known and worked with for seven to eight years, seven to 10 years. So these are not just, this is not just a group of people who are kind of loosely tied together. We've been working together as a, as a a group for a lot of years.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. What do you have to say to the guy that's, that's out there right now that's uh, going to listen to this that, you know, is, is still, you know, going through a, a half bottle of Jameson a night. He's got his Glock off on the table. He's trying to figure it out. What are you saying to those individuals right now?
1: Well, with, whether he's a veteran of conventional or special forces, I would say talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. And if the first person you talk to isn't very helpful, talk to somebody else. Second thing I would say is get your endocrine labs checked. Go see a primary care doctor. Go to Quest Labs. Go to some, you know.
0: Tell Talk a little bit about the endocrine stuff real quick, real quick.
1: Well, the endocrine system is, you know, all of our glands. Testosterone, thyroid, so on. Easy to check the lab levels, a simple blood draw in a day or two at the lab, and then you get get a page of results. And you can see where you're in range and where you're not in range, and you you know, if you're not in range, you definitely want to talk to a specialist who can advise you about what to do about that, but in a sense, those are, that's an easy, very objective assessment you can get. And if you're a special operator, and we're sure you've had blast wave exposure, then it's almost certain you, you're at high risk for some kind of endocrine dysfunction, and sometimes addressing that is is is, is huge. Um, and if you have any variable that's out of range, that gives a that gives an easy target, an easy treat a treatable, actionable target. Medically. Medically. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. If 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 you and I just met. And we're talking, and I say, So, have you had your, your blood labs done recently? And you say, Yeah, and I was low on testosterone. And I say, How low? I mean, this is actually a real, pretty much a real conversation I've had four or five times. And you say, Well, it's 220. And the doctor said that I don't, that that's, that that's okay. I don't need to address that. I will say, Well, you need to find a new doctor <laughs> um, because that is low testosterone, it's very low. And now let me tell you about yourself you're not sleeping well. You don't feel like yourself. You don't have much energy or motivation. You can't lift like you used to. You don't concentrate very well. You're irritable and grumpy. You're depressed. Um, your your girlfriend, if you have one, says you've lost interest in sex. You're not much fun to be around. You don't smile very often. And then the, and at that point, the guy the guy usually says to me, holy cow, how did you know all that? And I said, because your testosterone is 220. Yeah. Get that test testosterone addressed get that boosted up to where it needs to be and a lot of that maybe not all of it but a lot of that's going to change
0: wow just that alone
1: just that alone
0: and then after that you go to your tbi and your post-traumatic stress and your and your sleep and your orthopedic right right and and i just you know i just the biggest thing that i want guys to understand is that there is a pathway to towards healing. You're not going to be the same guy you were when you were 16, 17, 18 before you went in. You don't ever get to go back to that. Right. But at least you can be on this pathway of pain, right? Yeah. This towards relief of some capacity and to find yeah. some potential peace down downrange over the horizon for right. yourself. Right.
1: When I think about the guys that have taken their lives, I I wonder. And I don't wonder. I believe that if they could have found somebody to talk to who 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 knows what we're just talking about whether it's care providers or other unit guys um that if they just could have found that piece of hope to kind of grab onto amen they could have begun a process that would have taken them to a point of hope and recovery
0: wow well i tell you what we'll do we're gonna do another show here next time we run into each other, and we're gonna do one about that topic. And yeah, and well, and, and I think I, I keep getting hit extensively about it. And you know, it's it's a it's a tough one for me. I know it's a tough one for you too. And um, I think we just uh, have to have the right spot and the right time to really dig into the magnitude of what it means and how it affects people and uh, a lot of people. And how many people you know, contemplate it on a regular basis. But that's another show. All right. How do people discover the Synchrony Program? What do they do, Chris? Where do they go? Who do they contact?
1: Well, probably the easiest thing to do is to give
0: me a call. Wow. All right. Um, just go to the website or go to
1: Methodist. Contact your number at Methodist. Right now, we don't have a website. It's just, it's just going to be – it's just going – up in the next few weeks so okay. it's not even there yet but it'll be up in the next couple next weeks. couple of weeks houston methodist hospital uh alternatively you could give me a call on my personal number
0: no 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 no, no. uh uh-uh. i'm sorry sorry listeners you're not going to get that privilege uh he you when when he says he's serving a lot of people he's an understatement he's saving lives of a, a lot of human beings and he's already inundated no, no, no. Uh, so what we're going to do is you contact Methodist, right, and and leave a message on Methodist or or they can you have a, a, a line there?
1: Yeah, there's a line there. So Houston Methodist Hospital uh, Behavioral Health. Uh, let me see if you give me just a moment. No I can, worries. I can find yeah. that number.
0: And just also stay tuned out there, too. I mean, this website's going up soon. We're going to have more and more press releases about it. There's going to be a lot more information. You got it?
1: Yeah, I have it. I'm sorry. I should have been more prepared. No worries. So Houston Methodist Hospital Behavioral Health, the number is 346-238-2040. And what's the the website? Don't have a website yet.
0: All right. Well, Well, I mean, for the behavioral health Center.
1: Oh, Houston Methodist dot org. Houston dot org. Find
0: the Behavioral Health Center. And then you probably could also send them an email and then they can they can get back in touch. If not, go ahead and send me an email at teamfroglogic.com. Uh, send me uh, what who you are, where you're from. If you're from Texas, you can go tomorrow. Uh, if you're from some other place around the country uh, and you need it and you meet the criteria of time in uh, special Operations, as well as uh, the Intelligence World. Send me that email, and uh, we will find the funding to get you there. I promise you. Um, that is a promise. Uh, I think there are enough uh, good human beings out there that uh, I have connections with that we, could, we can get you funded and get in there uh, immediately. So uh, that's Team Frog Logic or the number that Chris just went through. All right. Jeez, um, man. You, you're coming out with a new book bud yep
1: yep it's just published let,
0: let me ask you this real quick yeah. why do you write fiction what, what got into you what, what made you want to do this because this is out of all the stuff this is the stuff that drives you crazy right
1: <laughs> well so yeah so i've always wanted to be a writer i've always enjoyed writing uh, i've been a i've been uh this is my ninth work of fiction that's been that published. It just blows me
0: away, man. Um, that blows me away. The
1: first eight, and I write under a pen name, Christopher Bartley, yeah. if you will. Um, that's an inversion of my first and middle name. I love it. That my agent liked. Um, I've got a marvelous agent, uh, Sonia Land in, in London. And, you know, she she's had faith in me. So six years ago, I f- published my first book. It was a, a crime novel about a, uh, a bank robber operating in Chicago in 1934. And 1934 was the year of the public enemy. Yeah. And he, he was kind of one of the, this my fictional character is one of the public enemies, robbing banks and hanging out with, with organized criminals. But, but really, that's just a vehicle for me to kind of tell stories about America. Yeah. And about the people in America. Um, to, to tell stories about the men with guns and the men who live... Uh, with death and, and violence um, in their past as well as on the very near point of their horizon. This book is a little different. Um, this is not part of that series, so I've published eight books in the in that series called the Ross Duncan series. This is a collection of novellas, some of which, the first one I wrote almost 30 years ago. Wow. And then the other two a little more recently, but they, they all kind of have a theme. Um, they're men with guns, men trying to figure out how to overcome a past.:
0: Well, um, oh, I like that. I like that part of it. Yeah. They're,
1: they're men who served in wartime. The first story is about a Civil War veteran. Mm-hmm. second story long after the Civil War, right. in middle age. The second story is about a, a man who's just come home from the European theater of World War II. So he's come home to Texas and trying to figure out, like, what the heck do I do now? Um, there's a there's a crime involved and heist and but, but it's mostly characters. It's mostly about the people yeah. and, and and their lives. And then the very last story is a, a story about a, a hike my wife and I took out in Arizona, Tent Rocks, Arizona, hmm. about ten years ago, and we met a very interesting uh, Vietnam veteran there at the end of our hike and had a had a meaningful conversation with him. Wow. And I just wrote a short story about it. So. That's cool, man. And where can people get the book? It's on Amazon. You All get, right, get it paperback or Kindle. Um, it's it's available on I Amazon. I love it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Should we tell them? Should we let them know that you're helping me with my next book?
1: Yeah, yeah, please.
0: Yeah, if I ever got off my ass. Yeah, when, my, when are you
1: going to get off your ass? I, I'm, I, you
0: know what? I'm just lazy. I that's know. what it is. You lazy. know, I'm a lazy. You writer. Barely work at all.
1: Traveling <laughs> coast to coast. <laughs> seven Recording, days a week. You know,
0: three podcasts a week. Try, yeah. Four kids. Tell a them about the book. Yeah. Well, it. it everybody knows that I have a book out in the first of the frog logic field manuals for adults and it's forging self-confidence. And my next book will be called, you know, living team life or just team life. And, and what's been awesome is, you know, developing my very close personal relationship with Chris. Uh, I, I figured oh, what a great opportunity with his writing prowess and your expertise of, of, uh, human psychology. Uh, I figured it'd be great to incorporate Chris's, uh, opinions and ideas about, the, the frog logic concept of team life and what it means and where it comes from, and so he's been helping me uh, give that perspective as well as some editing help. And so I don't know what I'm about a little over halfway done right it's almost now. Almost done. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. I think I'm, I'm I've found and a, 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 I've recorrected the voice, uh, especially after the last year and, and with Johnna coming into my life and. That, that was yeah. a dramatic shift in, in, yeah. in the perspective. getting the it.
1: voice right that's the hardest thing. That's the hardest, that's hardest, hardest thing, thing right
0: yeah. is to find what is the voice yeah. and you know so many self-help you know books out there, the voice is so plastic almost you know mm-hmm. that it, there's not a lot of depth to it and and I think once you know once uh, John came in, you helped me through you know the stuff I've been going through and it really gave me some confidence to shift the approach. Uh, to be much more uh, um, emotionally available and and to dig into that concept. Of, nice. It's yeah. been a lot of fun. Yeah, I've man. R-
1: really enjoyed working. Yeah, on it, really.
0: yeah. So I I think next time I come out to Hawaii for a writing trip, uh, yeah. John is going to have to writers come retreat. To, writers retreat. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. All when, right. When was that? That was. La- not a year and a half ago a year and a half yeah. Spring. spring yeah spring last year, yeah. Yeah, yeah i yeah. just met Jana, and and yeah right. we hadn't even told the kids yet or right. anything so yeah. yeah man
1: and that seems like a lifetime ago
0: fucking our lives it is a <laughs> lifetime ago are you kidding me yeah well chris man uh i can't thank you enough um uh just let me let me go across a couple planes um One, just your passion for veterans, thank you. Uh, More importantly, your devotion to special operations and to me and my friends, people that I love dearly, that you have saved their lives, um, which is a lot now. Um, Thank you uh, for what you're doing at Synchrony. Uh, for the sacrifices you make from your own personal work and Hawaii and with your wife, Karen. And thank you, Karen, for the sacrifice you make for uh, giving Chris to us uh, and allowing him to be committed to us. She just lends me. <laughs> she lends you. Yeah, lends, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I'm sure she would say, well, there are certain days where he's not there, right? Uh, and and then um, just your friendship, man, yeah. has meant the world to me. I really well, appreciate brother, it. I
1: love you, and this has been— you know, this this journey over the last few years has probably been the mo- one of the most meaningful periods of my life in terms of what I'm able to do and the people I've met and been a part of. And, um, you know, it's just been it's been an honor to, to get to know some of these people that, that, that I've gotten to know and to be able to, to play a small part in their lives. It's just, you know, it's meant a lot to me personally.
0: Amen. Yeah, I love brother, you, buddy. Thank yeah, you. Love
1: you back, brother.